A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This week, that would be through chapter 28 of Mistborn, The Final Empire by Branderson. Hey there, this is Cross. I am PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. I made a cocktail, Crossland. Like, for the first time in a while, I just went off script and made a cocktail. Kind of exists in general terms, but I think it's unique enough that I am calling it my own. So I'm excited to share it with the world. It is an exciting one too. And you've got fancy new glasses. I do have fancy that picture new glasses. And, and drink and everything will be shown up on the website because it's such a cool and good tasting cocktail. So it's going to be a lot of fun. We got very, a lot of shit to talk very about. Very cool and good. <laughs> very cool and good because that's the metric. Yep. <laughs> Those are the metrics. Okay. <laughs> with that today is our seventh episode discussing mistborn the final empire by branderson and we are going to be chatting about chapters 25 through 28 but before we get into those chapters those lovely lovely chapters switching from part three into part four let's talk about what we're drinking pj tell me about this lovely cocktail that you've invented and crafted today so i have decided to name it the ladrian soother after our Good buddy, Breeze. But it is two ounces of vodka. Uh, I used Reikia, which is, as we've discussed several times, our favorite brand of vodka. One ounce of ginger liqueur. One ounce of lemon juice. Half an ounce of rosemary simple syrup. Shook all that and then served it in my new coupe glass and garnished it with a lemon peel and rosemary sprig. So... I think what I would do differently, I think I'd go a little bit heavier on the ginger liqueur. That kind of gets lost from all of the rosemary that comes through and the lemon. Like It's just a little bit too light. And maybe I'd look for a stronger ginger liqueur in general. Maybe that's the solution. I'm not sure. But I wanted to, I didn't want to go too heavy because I didn't want it to be too sweet. But I think additionally, I'd add a little bit of bitters. This was my first pass at it. I really like how it turned out. It's complex. It's a little bit sweet. It's light and just kind of layered. So I I like the reveal as you drink it. But yeah, that's that. Following that up. That sounds really tasty. And I think it's appropriately named. There were other, other ideas bouncing around, but ultimately this one made the most sense. Next up after that is a beer by Blackstack Brewing that I think I've had on the show before, but a different varietal of it. It is the now presenting, it used to be Ken Burns Presents. This one, however, is new. It has plum, grapefruit, and passion fruit as the fruit additives. So excited to give that one a try. Crossland, what have you got for us? I am having what I've affectionately retitled the fuck me sideways because it is so damn good. 
Previously on the podcast, I think two or three episodes ago, I had a drink called the Strawberry Sovereign that I basically spruced up a style of sour for the kind of New Year's celebration that they were doing over at Hail Reaper. Very good drink. I found I picked out this new bourbon that I gave a try right before the show called Legent Bourbon. It is my favorite bourbon for the price for sure. Like no doubt $40 bottle here. Incredible crazy tasting so i renamed the drink because it uses specifically the legent bourbon and it is fucking amazing so two ounces of legent bourbon one ounce simple syrup one ounce lemon juice two to three strawberries mashed egg white thrown in all dry shaken and then garnished with strawberry and a little bit of ice just to keep it a cold in addition to a chilled glass so it is fucking awesome and you can tell just by the look of the drink mashing the strawberries does not make it look anemic like we talked about the last time that i had this mm-hmm. it no longer looks like that light brown <laughs> that kind of looked before and instead really has kind of that that purple hue so yeah it is awesome fucking awesome that bourbon is also the shot that i took right before the show in our pre-show it is mm-hmm. oh so good definitely gonna be having more of that to follow that up i have a Sycamore Brewing Company, which is out of North Carolina here. Uh, Slurricane, which has this <laughs> nice little fucking cloud on it, which is it, it, it's self-described as an India an IPA, but it is actually a hazy IPA when you read what's actually in it and like their brewing method. I think it's because they're not like they're the closest thing that they have in the area to Surly, if that makes sense. Sycamore is. So they're the most widely distributed craft beer place in the area. And because of that, you know, I think they simplify some of these things. They kind of dumb it down for people because they're like the IPA thing sells. So, like, let's not worry about some of the, the sub labeling mm-hmm. so much. So they do often label other beers, but I think this is just just on the fence enough. I haven't tried it yet, so we'll see if it's that is fucking delicious. Holy shit. What is in that? Blown away tropical haze swirling with notes of mandarin orange stone fruits and lime. This tastes like a fucking cocktail in a beer like it is. I'm guessing awesome. that's dangerous. Does it give a hot bill at all? I bet you dollars to donuts that there is cashmere in that. I bet there is. It does also has the cashmere sort of, what is it, like velvet, smooth, like, you know, it, it's got a texture to it, right? Oh, like the actual, like, hot, like, like fabric cashmere? No, no, I'm talking <laughs> the hot varietal. Generally, I always get like a. Okay, I'm not. A sort I'm of, not I, I haven't had a ton of cashmere. I just know that every okay. time I have it, it's blasting me away with mandarin orange got it but it's great really like it sycamore makes great stuff i've drank quite a bit of their stuff on the show candy mountain double candy mountain r2 that i know that i've had a lot so yeah they're great. awesome cool so with that let's move into pj's predictions pj we have a couple to talk about this week now that we're back to kind of keeping proper track of these again and everything so we've got the first one here Ellen splits from the table after a brief conversation with Vin, picking up his books, and heads over to share the conversation with House Rivals. The question is, what do you think is are Ellen's true intentions, given what we find about, out about him over the course of the chapter? You said... I My prediction was maybe he's impatient and wants to take out his own house to allow himself to rise faster. Nope. <laughs> we get a pretty clear message from his perspective that he wants to lead his house and he has no ill intent towards anyone in his family as far as I can tell. So, yeah. Cheers. Yeah. So you got the wrong inkling on Ellen. So drink. Mm-hmm. Excellent. 
Excellent. Cruel and unusual punishment here on the show. We're following that up with... Oh, darn. I'm drinking on the show. Oh, darn it. Drinking <laughs> on the show. So the next one, what will the consequences of Eden's actions here be? I need to clarify that. What will the consequences of Eden's actions here be? I'm so glad that we don't have to say his name anymore. I assume the crew, uh, you said, what did you say? Jesus Christ. So in in context, this is regarding the the army being deployed, essentially, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I assume the crew will infiltrate, infiltrate the garrison and Kelsier and Vin will scout ahead, trying to do what they can to assist the rebellion. If, okay. If this was an attack by Yeden, I think he'll be entirely replaced as a leader of the resistance. And uh, that's, there was, uh, I guess, Ham kind of infiltrated the garrison, but we knew that ahead of time and didn't even make it all the way up there. And Kelsier and Vin scouted ahead for sure. Did not do anything to help. And Vin stopped Kelsier from jumping in to the fray in general. Eden was not addressed, correct? Like, are, are we assumed, are we to assume that he died or was captured? Yeden was declared dead. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That they so. they found his body, basically. Gotcha. That there were scouts that found the body. That was right. in kind of the post post running into Demu part. So Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess that's right. He'll be replaced as leader. <laughs> yes, that does seem to be correct. I would agree with you in both cases there. Well that's fun. It Take does not quite like line up with None of that really lines up with the spirit of what I was guessing, so. Yes, yeah, there's kind of an incorrect assumption there, so mm-hmm. take your little sippy poo. Dude, I really cocktail. like this cocktail. Yeah. I really, uh, really like it. You're going through it at a breezy pace. I'm going through it way slower than I wanted to. <laughs> that's that's fair. That's fair. Um, I think the other thing to make note of, with the rosemary sprig, mm-hmm. a lot of aromatics to it, so mm. if you can... Mm include that anyway that's it that's it cool so with that we jump right into our breakdown starting with chapter 25 and i wanted to reread last week's epigram here uh just because or logbook epigram whatever you want to call it so at the very top of chapter 25 we have no man dies by my hand or command except that i wish there had been another way still i kill them sometimes i wish that i weren't such a cursed realist this is really interesting when paired up against what we kind of see over the course of this this chapter, which is sort of like Kelsier's reaction feels very similar to the the Lord Ruler's logbook in a way here. So Kelsier basically decide like is going to go pull no punches and go kill, right? Like he is out for blood basically to go take back the garrison, even though that isn't the correct choice. And the Lord Ruler in the logbook actually did kind of behave that way, even under different circumstances like it's a difference of like the lord rulers almost has this interesting cruel tone to it that we kind of talked a little bit about last week like it, it feels very cruel compared to a lot of the other things and realistic in a real gritty way versus kelsier is like passionate and driven that way it's a little bit of a so i i got the exact difference. opposite feel out of it i felt like sure. the lord ruler came off as not wanting to but feeling like he had to Whereas Kelsier's was wanting to, 
even though it probably wouldn't have worked that well. You know, like it, it felt like the Lord Rulers was based entirely on like v- devoid of emotion, whereas Kelsier's was entirely emotionally driven. That's a much better way to put what I. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So the the context there then is like the the emotionality difference between the two, mm-hmm. which is interesting considering what we know about the characters, right? Like the Lord Ruler now is a very cruel person versus like, yeah. but is that also potentially emotionless? Like the way he kind of behaves, you know. Assuming the Lord Ruler is. still exists. You're assuming the Lord Ruler doesn't exist? <laughs> we don't see him. Jesus Christ. We feel his presence and we see an outline. Uh, <laughs> so we start this <laughs> Mannequin in the window. We start this week in almost a panic from Kelsier's perspective, rolling through and laying out what must be done to react to Eden's decision with the army, including what Kelsier is really kind of leaning into and accepting the fact that he can no longer really control Vin and that she's sort of been bound to come with and follow him regardless. Yeah. This is certainly a panicked introduction to the week section. And I know for a fact that you choose very particularly where we start and end each episode. So thank you. It does give it a sense of urgency. <laughs> it does. It absolutely does. I've, I've been really appreciating the way that you've been chunking this out. So, But anyway, I think this is not only an important realization about Vin, but great development for Kelsier as a mentor to her. Like, mm-hmm. He seems to be giving her more credit as a Mistborn. And is starting to see her as sort of a peer as opposed to like a strictly like student, you know? This obviously happens later on, but when Vin calls him out and mentions that he's not invincible, it actually gives him pause. And to me, that shows that he is listening and actually respects her and is like she's being elevated beyond the pupil status in his mind. Yeah, from pupil to peer, right? Like that's really kind of the change. It's not it's not full that way, not but it quite. does have at the very least like a little bit of that context where he's taking her opinion a lot more seriously. Right. Yeah. I I would definitely Yeah, I feel like she's making a move towards peer. She isn't actually there yet by any stretch of the imagination, but Yeah. She's definitely grown significantly enough to feel like she can even voice her opinion when You know, I don't think that's something she ever would have done or tried before. Yeah. So. But then we get pewter dragging and we get this running. We get this crazy adrenaline lace scene of running through the streets of Luthadel, jumping over the walls and launching. And holy shit, is this just such a cool combination of moments here because it kind of breaks with the training that we've come to understand with with pewter and like resist dragging like we talked about the effects it's generally negative mostly overusing these effects have negative consequences on you in the long term uh but 16 hours of running to be precise they experience it also gives like a brief explanation as to why mist cloaks are as important as they are they inform others that these are mistborn that are running through the streets so that they get the fuck out of the way as sort of the social cue and yeah they don't want to get charged over by a bull so you know if you see the tassels come in Dude, how much would it suck to get hit by somebody running like that? Just the absolute absurdity of what they're able to put through, like put themselves through with pewter means that they also probably wouldn't feel it. 
if they hit you. No, right. <laughs> On, upon impact, it would be as though you were hit by, like, a steel boulder and, like, you're done. <laughs> you're, you know, I'm imagining the, like, pigeon in baseball, like, the pitcher that pitches the baseball and just destroys the pigeon, turns it into feathers, but, like, people. Yep. Or, like, have you seen the first episode of The Boys? Yeah. Yeah, so when What's-His-Name runs through his girlfriend, same thing. Yep. 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 <laughs> right. Same idea. Like, it would be, it'd be I think really it'd bad. be a little bit hmm, less vapory, maybe? Less pulpy. I don't know. Would it be less pulpy? I don't think you'd disintegrate I think be, the person. No, I don't think you'd disintegrate them, but I do think you would pulp them. More like pulp <laughs> at the bottom of your orange juice glass, you know? Like, juice and pulp. Yeah, bad time. Bad time. Bad, either way, involved. bad. Either way, bad time. But I feel like this description really kind of expands the magic system to a certain extent and gives us more detail on the power and resulting drawbacks of pushing this the system that we're living in, this allomancy system, a bit harder than normal. And saying a bit harder in this context is maybe a little bit of an understatement, but the fact that that exists gives me like even more respect for the system that we're working. Yeah. We talked about this very early on in the show, but we, we directly compared a lot of the metals to each other, right? Like we talked about how they're, they are opposites in a lot of ways. This is where we kind of actually understand where tin and pewter are opposites because pewter like bolsters, internally or like your external response to things but also like makes you numb it it dulls your senses to a point as well where like you don't feel pain you're actively resisting pain whereas tin enhances your senses and makes everything extra sensory so that's where this pairing really comes from and it's not something that you can really explain with the the explanation of pewter being increased strength pewter has increased everything musculature and like a deadening of nerves at the same time because of the effect of pewter dragging. So it really creates them as these effective opposites. Yeah. But also compliments mm-hmm. because do we know can pewter dragging happen without having tin to lean on? Yes. Pewter dragging can happen without tin okay. to lean on. To, to this extent though? Thug or not thug. Ham. <laughs> Ham. Ham talked about thugs over like overdoing it with pewter dragging and then like dying basically when they turned it off because mm-hmm. they weren't aware or able to be aware. So it's much more dangerous for a non born to your point. Yeah, like the compliments between the two are really, really cool. So, yeah, they're much more direct than like we couldn't really get into it that much because mm-hmm. you kind of need the rest of this before you really get the full picture. But right. Yeah. So they're running this incredible long way, pewter dragging, going so fast, so far, you know, taking four basically to fuel an hour for pewter pellets, I think, to feel like an hour worth of running and just like keep going and going and going to the point of where they arrive Their Vin is like exhausted at the point of like an odd pass out. But, you know, is basically told by Kelsey to flare tin to stay awake alive <laughs> you yeah. know the responding properly to not drop the pewter despite the exhaustion because then it would all really catch up with her and we arrive to the scene of slaughter of the army and it's a painful painful watch it's painful for kelsier like we had talked about and almost that feels like it could have led to his death if vin would have been so insistent to have came along considering his headstrong nature 
you know, thankfully Vin is here, of course, to talk sense into him. I, I think for both characters, this is this is kind of that pivot point that we talked a little bit about earlier, you know, already. But what mm-hmm. do you make of their exchange and the sort of honesty of the conversation that they're able to have here now? Yeah, I, I guess we we discussed it a little bit in in a couple different contexts. One in between between Vin and Kelsier, but in two between Kelsier and the Lord Ruler. But I'll I'll I guess a little bit more directly expand on it. Obviously, this situation is really difficult to to see, and we really get to see Kelsier's willingness to go and sacrifice himself for whatever cause that he feels strongly for and like we see that his decision making is so heart-based and vin alternatively is able to sort of balance that she's naturally untrusting from what we've seen and generally seems less emotional in her decision making process so being able to call each other out for these these instances makes for a really really cool pairing. Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost like they're paired like the metals are. Like maybe the characters are paired that way. Weird. Could could it be? Why? Like why Hammond would, and Breeze are kind of a pair. Why would that happen? Why, why would, would they that do happen? anything like that? Why is this whole thing about like a duology of personalities, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it it is an interesting theme though that does run from like the very beginning of this chapter through that epigram the the logbook all the way to the end of this part basically and it's been going on this whole time but it's put into yeah you know, we just have so much more context now that we can kind of see the stricter terms as it, as the characters have developed themselves so just thinking on that i'm going to make a wild wild crazy prediction that probably won't come true or not true for maybe ever but hear me out. Vin is the Lord Ruler through some crazy overuse of gold. And she is some weird alternate timeline of the Lord Ruler. Okay. All right. I wrote that prediction <laughs> down because fuck you if I'm not holding you accountable to that. That is 100% staying as a prediction because that is – that's a prediction. So so that is just a wild prediction. <laughs> I like where your head's at with gold, right? Because gold is this interesting kind of foreign... That nobody understands. Yeah. So. But clearly has something to to do... Uh, We'll talk about gold later. Yeah. Yeah. We've got some stuff to talk about between the extra metals. But after the confrontation and we kind of see the the way that the fight ends, Vin suggests going to go check out the caves just to see if anyone remained behind. And we find a small contingent of soldiers chose to remain in the cave because they didn't believe that what Yeden was doing correct, led, of course, by Demu. And he almost feels he's got this interesting tone about him. He feels almost shameful about deciding to stand behind because he's like, we thought that it was the right thing to do for you. We didn't necessarily agree with Yeden, although now we feel shame because, like, same time, we know they're going out and fighting for the righteous cause. They feel very mixed about this. Uh, but they saved a good chunk of the army's lives. What do you make of kind of Demu's Demu's decision to stay behind? I mean, there's obviously hindsight that tells them that it was the smart move. Right. But I think that's also where the guilt comes from. But I think it's always important to have a contingent reserve of like in a situation like this, why would you put your entire force towards something just in case, you know? 
Like you, you want that reserve in case something goes incredibly wrong like it does here, unless it's an absolute like last stand all out. We win or we f- or we die situation. Yeah, I, I understand that. But are you suggesting that Yeadon suggested doing that? Because I don't think Yeadon. No, okay. no. But I, I think maybe maybe his De- head Demuse wasn't in the demure demeanor. I just thought that I'd fucking shit up. It was too good to not say out loud. I <laughs> fuck, dude. I think his his decision making process. Oh, maybe maybe that's why he's feeling conflicted because mm-hmm. it wasn't necessarily strategic why he stayed back. But no, it's more of a moral decision. Like, yeah, he's definitely. I, I think, don't know. I, I don't know what I think. From. I think it was the right move, and I think fuck. Fuck, man. I don't know now. I was I was approaching it from the wrong direction, and I'm really not sure what to think now. Hmm. But I'm glad he didn't. Because you're thinking about it from like the entire rebel side of things. Yeah, I was thinking it. Yeah. about it from like uh, an RTS perspective. RTS all in all the time, baby. I don't know what you're thinking. What you're talking about? A move. Mm-hmm. Right click that shit. Send the mutas into the front of the base. Don't use them strategically to pick off, pick off stuff on the back line. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> what you're mean why did i anyway okay so yeah demuse whole i'm so glad that this is so easy to add it out uh so demu 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 i need to reground myself give me one moment okay beyond the conversation with demu demu and kind of the the them keeping with the theme and discussion of kind of the pain and loss that they experience here there's kelsier feels a lot of this on his shoulders right it's an internal discussion that he kind of has with himself about being responsible for the death of five thousand odd troops and ultimately he pins it all on himself as as his own fault and consequence of his actions to sort of inspire the men and make them believe that they could be more even through the things such as heroically manipulating demu into this sort of superhero like able to beat the odds capability you know it kind of gave them again sort of the inverse view their own lord ruler that's like for them in a way that gave them that inspiration well we've got our own god and it's it's interesting considering that this is also a failure point for the plan this is where the heist that we've been building towards this entire story seems to have really kind of fallen apart so what do you make of his reaction and in turn the conversation that he has with Menace, the man from the prologue at the beginning of the story? So I, I think it takes us back to the heart of Kelsier, I guess, the the emotionality of him and what motivates him. And I like him taking everything so personally means that he is motivated to get things done. But it also means that it's taxing on him. But the whole thing is simultaneously motivating and depressing, you know? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is really interesting because he does get the internal reflection on his failure of leadership, although I think maybe he's overdoing it a little bit. And I think that's kind of that's Menace's interesting perspective on this whole thing, right? Is that like, well, don't completely blame yourself because you actually created the most successful uprising in hundreds of years right here like this was the most success that we've ever experienced 
but the end of Menace's perspective is like, you did this really successful thing. Now it's time to pack it in and move home. <laughs> like it's it's time to be done. Like you you gave inspiration to a generation and made it so that like we aren't going quietly into the night. But yeah, Kelsier obviously disagrees with that, and this isn't the this isn't the give up point here. Right. I think another thing I wanted to bring up was my initial reaction to the scene was that I was surprised that Kelsier didn't recognize Menace. But then I realized that he's been doing this for way longer than we've been seeing him do this. And Menace was just another another guy that he had a conversation with. It wasn't necessarily a special situation. Like Maybe it was a little bit more special than some because, like, Obviously, he burned the fucking place down. But overall, I'm sure he's had a bunch of conversations very similar to the one he had with Menace, with other Ska. Like, I, I wouldn't even call it a patriarch, but other other Ska people within households throughout the countryside. So that was kind of a cool eye-opening thing for me, seeing that. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it is interesting to your point because, like, Kelsier has done so much of this work variously this is just the unique one that we actually got to see the inside of you know there's so many times that we get little little time skips you know here or there like we're about to experience one that's another 15 days of which we don't know exactly what's going on you know in the in the foreground of the story so it's not as though Kelsier hasn't been doing other things or it's not as though he's been liberating plantations he was beforehand we kind of know that that was not the only case and in, in trusting's case that you know mm-hmm. he went ahead and did that so it's just cool to kind of see that full circle right here and also know that like menace did follow through and join the rebellion. Like they were headed to the caves, but also they made it to the caves. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. It's kind of nice to have that on a prologue. So cool with that. We move into part four, unless you have anything else inside of this chapter. No, I think that covers it. Cool. So with that, we move into part four dancers in a sea of mist. Any any thoughts on the the like little title here for part four? Anything in particular? I'm still working that out. I'm not sure yet. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. We'll see how it unfolds. I like the name. I can. I'll, I'll I tell you too. that much. I, yeah. I think that it's a like most of these sections. It is a very eloquent name. So yeah, I do enjoy. With that, we go into chapter twenty six and the journal entry for <laughs> this little chapter is so nice sweet and short it is just simply i am growing so very tired period and to be honest same lord ruler i am so tired (laughs) i am so exhausted stayed up way too late last night uh but it also rolls pretty seamlessly into what's going on with vin the absolute abject exhaustion from her 15 days from for the last 15 days from pewter dragging doing all this crazy running and the absolute exhaustion that she's experiencing yeah obviously some of these journal entries have started to relate more and more to the actual (laughs) story this one's pretty on the nose dude (laughs) this one is so very on the nose i actually (laughs) forgot about it until i was rereading it because when you're listening to it in the audiobook it goes so quickly that you're like wait there wasn't more. <laughs> just, it's there and it's gone. And so I had to double back because when I was going through notes today, I had the text in front of me, but then I was also listening and kind of multitasking and getting some other stuff done. So I like went, I went to the book and I flipped it open. I'm like, was that really it? And I was like, yeah, okay. That, that was really it. That's all. It's perfect. It's well done. 
but yeah, I I love it, and I think the context that we get here is also also great. So it's awesome. So we we also get we immediately transition from the like I am so very tired tired like sleeping exhaustion into Vin's new self care routine. Right? She's it's it's really something to strive for in 2022. You know, like we're New Year, new me, right? And Vin is kind of experiencing that whole thing throughout the story as well. This is a great point to kind of talk about that. Between like her bath, her appreciation for the accompanying scents that she used to shy away from and cleanliness, what? and then she tops it all off by demanding a beer at noon. <laughs> Heck yeah. Fuck yes. I think <laughs> I think one thing to make note of is I wanna say the quote is something like, I'm glad Breeze's assistance remembered to run me a bath. She is absolutely leaning into her her ladyship. But beer at noon is absolutely the type of self care that I want to get more attention and beyond that <laughs> stand a lunch beer i think 9 a.m old fashions need to also be destigmatized <laughs> in the same camp as a bloody mary or a mimosa it's fine guys yeah we just want something rich to kick off the morning exactly i'm shocked that you didn't go with like a coffee cocktail to be honest i was thinking through and i was like yeah all right we're just going hard right away in the morning <laughs> not hard we're going appropriate right away in the morning this is Medicine, Crossland. <laughs> Taking my medicine at 9 a.m. Before, <laughs> before you're going to class or work or what have you. The confrontation that we get after she goes downstairs and goes, Ale, now please, between <laughs> Breeze, Kelsier, and the rest of the crew, I think is a a really shocking one compared to how the rest of this chapter kind of opens in these like high overtones of kind of groggy hangover, you know, that's sort of the reality that she's facing right here. But then we get into this really deep, dark confrontation between Breeze, Kelsier, and the rest of the crew, basically saying that, you know, they're in a tough spot and that basically the job is over, as we'd kind of surmised at the end of Chapter 25. And Vin definitely empathizes with that position. What'd you make of kind of Breeze's point in the subsequent conversation before we head to the Fountain Square? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that Kelsier has no... Not no intention, but it's not his goal to steal all the ATM that he's been promising. Like, I'm sure that's, uh, I guess I'm approaching this from like the first time I read this. And so without, without the context of later on, but like, it seems like he's pretty clearly acting not quite in that interest, but like that's. It feels like his desire to go towards the ATM and his promise of it is more to do with having the stores of ATM to try to take down the Lord Ruler later. Like that's a means to the end as opposed to the end with the with the side quest of killing the Lord Ruler, you know? I don't know. It's just Yeah, that was yeah. that was kind of the way that it was pitched, right? Is that the side quest was the Lord Ruler thing when in reality for Kelsier the Lord Ruler thing was the whole thing the whole time. Right. I I don't know if it was pitched that way because Breeze explicitly says you have no intention of getting the ATM. And I don't think that's true either. I think he intends to get the ATM, but not for the, the sake of riches, for the sake of using it. Yeah, using it as either currency to destabilize the economy or what have you, like just having it, you know, I'm, as kind of a free-wielding tool. I'm thinking like offensively against like – against the Lord Ruler, having a store of ATM that's basically infinite to constantly see what's coming ahead or to 
You get what I'm saying? Like, I do get what you're yeah. saying. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. No, I drag. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I think he he doesn't even pitch it that way here. He pitches it as like ATM's a side benefit, like regardless. Mm. Right. So, I don't. I don't think. I think ever since the introduction of the eleventh medal, to some degree, that's kind of been our hint throughout the story that like Kelsier's deeper involvement is definitely directed towards the Lord Ruler. And this is sort of the cementation of that idea that like, yeah, he had, you know, it would have been, it would have been great. And it would have been an additional thing that he would have given out money to everyone, but that was never his holistic goal. Yeah. It it seems odd to me that they all were under that impression to begin with, you know? Yeah. Cause they were able to read him, you know, but they were also no, okay with they, it. Like everyone, they weren't, they weren't able to read it because breeze is calling him out for it here. He's like, what the fuck? Like, that's that's not your intention anymore. I don't know. He is calling him out here for it, but they had been kind of making these comments about either the like ego behind the decision to like go after the Lord Ruler and other things like that. That kind of point in the direction of the primary goal not being to pull off the heist of ATM, right? To like mm-hmm. not get them paid. And this is really a direct confrontation of the fact that like A, it's impossible, and B, this was clearly never your goal, and we're finally breaching the subject. Because everyone had been kind of having these inklings of either it being ego, is he trying to like outdo him? Is he trying to supplant the you know, the Lord Ruler? What exactly is his goal here? Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of all there. Like it's that's kind of the question. And everyone's at different levels, and I think Breeze is on the was never he was less, well, obviously he's very direct here, but he was less direct about those feelings wherein Doxon, I think, was sharing a lot of thoughts and feelings about like his thoughts on Kelsier's egotism, especially with Vin and Ham. Yeah. Yeah, they both had that kind of going on. So this is Bree's time to like question. He does it directly. He questions Kelsier himself because that's his, that's kind of his personality, right? He's more, especially given his misting trait, he is more of a direct confrontation person, even mm-hmm. if he's bending your will a little bit, of which also leads to an interesting never soothe me again breeze <laughs> threat of which feels like a lethal threat. Like, do not fuck with. Yeah. Yeah, that was a little bit more severe than what we've seen in the past. Yeah, that was very, very seriously. Like, don't don't you dare. It's <laughs> terrifying. So we then move, of course, to the Fountain Square and we kind of see the grouping and all of the people that are pushed out we we see the obligators and steel ministry basically going through and pushing people out of houses met the men out of houses to ensure that they are there to witness the execution and this like grouping up for the execution is like a large kind of wild thing considering you know like our society and what it is death as a punishment for not attending is intense and this feels just like another cog and a gear in the cog of the suppression that is like the lord ruler any thoughts on the practice that he displays here and how that fits into the power structure of oppression that the Ska experience? I mean, I think it perfectly fits the power structure. <laughs> right. Grand displays like this would go a long way in cementing the Lord Ruler's power in the minds of the oppressed through fear and spectacle. Like, this feels like something perfect for a theocracy, you know? Especially a theocracy through fear, right? Yeah. Yeah, through which fear is kind of the leading driving force. And a living theocracy, I think, is the important part. Like, your God is alive. Like, this is, that's the other part that's wild. So, like, theocracy almost doesn't, like, it. yes, it is a theocracy, for sure. 
but that's only because we also have never experienced a living God. So there isn't a term to determine, you know what I mean? Like there's not a physical manifestation of a godly presence guiding the government as well. Like if yeah, <laughs> any of the religions were correct, I mean, and Vatican, you know what I mean? No, that's not the same. That's like, we're talking about God itself manifest in some capacity. Is it, isn't that the idea of the Pope, though? Is like a conduit? No, that's like the ear of the mouthpiece of God. That'd be like right. the mouth of Sauron. Okay. Fair. Yeah. Yeah, good point. This is just a step further than that, in theory. Like, mm-hmm. the Lord Prelin is more like the Pope, if that makes sense. That would be right. my comparison. Okay. There we go. Yeah. So, Vin is a Popelet. A Popelet, yes, which is illegal. <laughs> Just like it would be illegal for the Pope to have a Popelet. It'd be very illegal for the Pope to have a Popelet. I think I talked to Sharkbait about this this week, one of our patrons. Did you use the term Popelet? No, it was something about the Pope not getting off, and it was terrible. It's a really bad joke. It was great in context, but here we are repeating it without full context. So, yeah. You know, it's still pretty great. Yeah, it's still really funny. Because Pope jokes are hilarious. He's got a little car. He's got a big hat. And Does he still have a little car? Does he still have a big hat? I I don't think Francis wears the big hat often. <laughs> but I think the big hat does exist. Also, Pope Francis. What a name. Okay. <laughs> like, lighten up Francis. Like, I don't know. It's just... There's just so many <laughs> lines. Anyway. The point being, the Lord Ruler is terrifying. The Pope is kind of funny. All right. But we also find out as we transition into the rest of the scene that we have eight steel inquisitors in one place. And out of the 20, as we've kind of identified them, many of the obligators marshalling around the people as we spoke about. And we see among them the Lord Prelin, of whom we just talked about, Tavidian, Vin's father, the leader of the obligators, highest ranking of the steel ministry, the allegory to the Pope in this circumstance, as we just made clear. And man, this gives... Like the car that is Vin, a whole new layer of backstory paint, you know, like it's it's an it's like an undercoat of paint that like it it is both cool and important in quotes, but it doesn't really matter to her character because she's so separated from her father being the orphan that she is. But she is still the orphan to the second most senior ranking man in the Empire underneath only the Lord Ruler himself. Does that make sense? Does my metaphor make sense there? Like, yeah, so it's there it's cool, but it's not ultimately crazy impactful to her personally so there there's a couple things that i want to touch on here Mm -hmm. with him being so first of all this is all under the assumption that reen knew what he was talking about when he showed vin who her father was like that is we're assuming that i don't know if i'd buy it but that's what we're assuming based on how high of a ranking officer that he is I feel like it it's kind of unbelievable to assume that he was completely unaware of her mother's pregnancy and is therefore completely unaware of Vin's existence. So maybe he doesn't know exactly who she is and like what she looks like now, but I, I find it kind of hard to believe that that could go under the radar. You know, being that high ranking, like... He's got to be that much more careful because he's going to be that much more scrutinized. Yeah, and you could call it kind of lackadaisical. One of the things that I find interesting with the sort of story that we have so far, right, is that we know that Reen is her brother, but that the Lord Prelin isn't her father. Like, we do know that from early context. 
So he is, in fact, her half-brother, but brother who raised her. You know, it's all all relative. Wait, we know that the Lord Prelin isn't his father. Is that what you're saying? Yes, we yeah. do know yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, we do right. know that. We don't necessarily have strict details on Vin's younger sister. So that's a question mark. Right. Right. So that's the question of, like, maybe this was a repeat and it was his one that he, like, kept in the closet to some degree, you know? That's a good point. Didn't think about that. Yeah. That's kind of like a complex reread of that situation now that we have all this additional information because most of that was given to us in, like, chapter four. So we haven't Mm -hmm. thought about it or talked about it in a long time. But I do agree with you. I think it is interesting because it does paint that pregnancy is a much more complex thing that it was kind of presented to us at first. Now that we have all of this other context about Tavidian. Yeah. And also that his name is Tavidian. Better than Francis. Much better than Francis. <laughs> sorry. Sorry to any Francis is out there. <laughs> yeah, sorry to any Francis who's listening to us or vaguely anyone who's Catholic. Apologies. We are both ex Catholics. So we have feelings i don't, I don't mean to insult your faith so far as i think that it's funny that the pope does these silly things yeah i mean to insult your faith they're funny okay <laughs> in in the novel that is in the novel series that is so clearly about faith in various contexts we're just like yeah i'm just gonna shit on that real quick just take give me a second so <laughs> but then of course we're, we're inside of this scene inside of the fountain and we cut to the black carriage kind of pushing through the crowd and people separating for it and this choking sense of sense of soothing that as it's described actually reminds me of like if Darth Vader could like put a turtleneck choke on everyone it's kind of like how i imagine this impacting a whole crowd yeah does that make sense like yeah. turtleneck like just <laughs> turtle a light choke choke <laughs> um you glossed over something that i think <laughs> You you glossed over something that I thought was really, really cool visually. Yeah. The the two giant white horses that were pulling this carriage. Oh, yeah. Good point. Like, that's a cool visual. Especially like, given the kind of the visual, the visual nature of ash falling from the sky and everything else. And like this dark world, these like clean white horses. Right. Like that's that's a level of regality and nobility that only the Lord ruler would have. Yeah, but I I saw it almost more spectral, and almost oh yeah. yeah 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 like not not actually spiritual like not like an actual spirit but just more daunting and more I don't like, I don't again, know again it's like a yeah. foreign kind of like I think spectral is a good way of putting it like it's not mm-hmm. it's not as though they're like literally mistrates but it is it is a foreign strange concept yeah out of place yeah. Out of place for sure. But the Lord Ruler is there giving those tiny little turtleneck chokes to everyone. At the same time, Vin seems to still feel his touch on her emotions through burning her copper. She can still feel that penetrating, that that protective presence that she should have. And he's, of course, showing up here to execute the women and children of whom are just being blamed for the rebellion. Not that they had any part to do with it. These are just basically executions for show of force selected at Mm -hmm. random examples this is a lot to kind of meditate on, but what are some of your thoughts around this? So, first of all, that's fucked. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. The tiny turtlenecks, like, on everyone, that's yeah, really Yeah, like, fucked. who would do yeah. that? They're not who even that, that good looking. They're definitely not that good looking. Like, why wouldn't you just wear a fucking dress shirt? Wear a tie, hippie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Damn it, Steve Jobs. It's a dying trend. So, I, I think what's really interesting to me about her feeling his touch 
on her emotions through the copper. There's her kind of questioning it later. Like, is, is she just assuming that she would feel it because of how powerful he is? And like, it's a placebo effect, essentially. I don't think that's true. I think what's going on here is we're understanding that copper isn't a binary power. It's not just on or off. It's just so much more powerful than anything else that you have to have something super insanely powerful to overcome it. And the Lord Ruler is able to do that just innately. That's my that's my take on it. I don't, I don't know. That has implications that's, later as well. Well, but. maybe we should talk about that a little bit right now because i think that it's it's important to kind of talk about this yeah. so so there's that there's like how how is she able or how was how were the steel inquisitors waiting for them in that room when they infiltrated kedic shah kedic shah kedic shah you almost said carmen shah shout out to our english teacher Ew. but if he's got this like all-seeing power just around him that detects allomancy, for example, he'll always know when somebody's coming in, even through copper, if it's powerful. Enough. I don't know. That's where I was going with all that. Got it. Got it. We know we get a little bit later here, too, that we understand that allomancy's powers are sort of bounded by the amount of metal and the time in which, like, metals pretty much work the same for everyone. There's no real difference in allomantic ability it's really more to do with your physical skill. Like no one is necessarily stronger in a metal than anyone else. Right. We learned that about Alamancy, but Farrakemi, but we do know that people are be, are able to be like more, more in tune with it and more perceptive to things, you know, like Vin is able to pick out very intricate. God, what, what was it? Was it the conversation with Marsh? Yeah, where the he bronze, was surprised with bronze how, capability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there is a there is a granularity to it and a perception to it that can be tuned, and you can you can practice that. But the strength, I guess, doesn't change. Yes, right. That was kind of the the point. There is that there shouldn't be a discernible difference as we learn the rules from Kelsier. Like everyone in theory should have the same bounds. The upper bounds of Alamancy are the same. Ferukemi is decided by the amount that is stored in the metal and the the quickness with which someone consumes that ability. So if you've got something like Speed Sword, you could run really fast for a short period of time or just a little bit faster for a longer period of time, as it's explained. So with that assumption, like you could you can change all kinds of things. However, we we also know from that little bit of Farrakenny that there's no there's no soothing within ferrochemy. Like there's no soothing equivalent affecting things externally because you're just storing things internally for your own use later. You can't impact other people with ferrochemy. So far as it's been described, I should say. Right. But you can't impact other people. So that's an interesting bound of the power that doesn't seem to line up with how the Lord Ruler is using it, right? Because he's using soothing at such a higher degree than anyone else is. Yeah. And so you'd think that, I, I guess, like, what do you think? Maybe that's the better, like, throwing it back to you now that we're talking about this and we have all the other kind of context. So there, there's a whole lot of new context in this section. Yes. And I guess I can bring in something from later on. It seems like Kelsier is 
insinuating that Allomancy existed before the Ascension. I think he's assuming. He, it, it's an assumption, sure. Yes, right. But then there's also the comment from the Lord Ruler talking about... In the logbook, right? In the logbook. Yeah, of course. Yeah, That's in, the only time that we've seen her talk to the Lord Ruler. Yeah, where he comments on like direct interaction with the deepness like telepathically or something it's not really described how but like there is something fucky here that's different and i don't know what it is but like that's a power that we haven't seen or heard described before of like interacting with with somebody telepathically i was under the impression that Allomancy existed because of the Ascension, based on the term misting and mistborn, because I know we, we know that the mist came from the Ascension as well, or we assume, I can't remember if that was confirmed or not, but like the mist didn't exist before that. We assume the logbook for the most part, you know? Like, yeah. Like, there's, I know there are a bunch of really, like, crucial missing puzzle pieces here, and I'm trying my best. To, like, put them together. Yeah. To like doodle, doodle the little missing part of the picture. Yeah. So to get back to what we were talking about as well, just like circling back to what we were saying, we obviously we have this supreme power that seems to be able to push through copper burning, which we talked about a little bit with the tiny turtlenecks everywhere, and even that feeling still when burning bronze. And then on top of that, we have the sort of random executions. Do you have any thoughts on the executions outside of the the sort of horrifying nature? I mean, this is kind of the the perfect situation to motivate the crew to, like, go along with Kelsier's actual plan, you know? Yeah, I mean, the combination of, like, put four people up on the pedestal, behead them, bleed them into the, the pool so that everyone can see because now it's flowing downward and so people can see the blood, wait until their bodies stop bleeding, take the next four, do it again take the next four, do it again, is also a very Dune thing. This is maybe the one thing that feels the most referential to me. It's a very small scene in the movie, but do you remember the Sardaukar, the soldiers, when there's when they're like sitting there and they're they're like walking through the giant field of gray and there's the the like throat singing that's going on that we're like it's a didgeridoo, it's actually throat singing. Remember that mm-hmm. bit? Yeah. So in the book all of these Sardaukar who don't make the cut, basically, or the people who are trying out to be Sardaukars, become the blood that are painted on the actual Sardaukars as a part of, like, a ritual sacrifice. And so they, the the river of blood basically flows between so that the priests can pick up the blood with their hands and dab it on the armor and the, the face and whatnot. And this feels very similar. Like, not, not a perfect one-to-one, but it feels similar enough in reference and kind of reverence and power in sort of this interesting mystical way because the Sardaukar are the emperor's force and at the same time these are executions on behalf of the emperor here the emperor the lord ruler so yeah okay i don't know if i see that connection so much in the way you describe mm. it but i'm also coming at it without having actually read dune so yeah <laughs> i guess i'm i'm taking the scene that you saw which is it it is truly like that imagery is more like for fans, if that makes sense. Like okay. the images of the upside down bodies that they're bled to death so that then the blood can be used in the armor is more of like a ritual thing for that. But this is, this is 
it just feels reminiscent. It's not it's not mm-hmm. a one to one, but okay. it feels especially with the amount that I know that Sanderson loves Dune. I think it's his second favorite book series behind the Wheel of Time. It feels it feels inspired. That's fair. But either way, he, of course, fucked, dude, fucked, <laughs> super fucked. The obsidian axes too, like that idea of like pulling them up and then chopping them down. And of course, they're not made of metal. They're again, the glass axes to kind of get at them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's it also is this moment for Kelsey to have this very powerful speech to accompany it about the nobility and sort of the nobility's the nobility not reacting to what's going on in front of them, right? The lack of reaction, some of them even like being happy and jovial about it. Vin looks over, doesn't see Ellen being that. And like his, his group of young, young noblets, I think are, are not reacting in the same kind of way. So she feels a little bit there, but he uses this as a moment to be like the nobility standing idly by. And it's sort of this preamble to what is going to come, which is, action to work on a plan and they all agree that despite the failure of the original plan and heist they now have a rebellion to effectively effect yeah i mean the timing couldn't have been better you know there's the the confrontation that gets cut short by this that i i'm sure a lot of a lot of the crew members would still be on board with this explanation, but having this visual just cements it, you know? Yeah. It, it's a very, it's very powerful. Like this entire scene is again, I think this world can feel it's so well described in like contexts and characters are well developed and we, we get a lot of different kind of nuances of story, but sometimes we can get like pulled a little bit too far away from from the scene we've talked about kind of the way that brandon sanderson reels us back into making sure that we understand the stakes especially so like the killing of the scott child outside of the party was one example this is another example to get us rooted in the reality of the problem and get us removed from sort of the day-to-day drama almost of sorts that that we otherwise experience from the crew so this is just the most grand version of that this is that elevated excuse me so We get the plan taking shape after this massive setback to move us forward with the garrison gone. It's time to ignite the house war, seize the ATM, and in turn pay the garrison mercenaries to work for them to take down the Lord Ruler. The game is afoot, as they say. Afoot! Afoot! (laughs) Afoot! One foot. (laughs) A single, singular foot. In this, like, in this moment, I am so excited to see more houses just precariously set and ready to topple. You know, and ready to get like, exploded into a war with the other houses. I'm, it's it's satisfying to see this setup. It's super fun. So I'm excited to see more of it. Yeah, and especially with the way that the next chapter starts to set up some of those cards, right? It's, we start to see the House of Cards potentially building for some of this house collapse. It's it's interesting. I totally agree with you. We're, we're starting to set that stage really dramatically. We're pulling the blocks out of the bottom of the Jenga Tower here. Yeah. It's it's a small detail as well, but Vin identifying him as the man from the logbook, the Lord Ruler, of course, and also never having his face revealed in the scene, we kind of talked about it earlier, is kind of a really clever play on Sanderson's part, I think. Keeping the big bad shrouded and not revealed to us seemingly at the same time. Like, he's here, but he's not, it's not fully him. You know what I mean? Like, we we haven't seen behind the curtain yet. Yeah. It, it certainly allows our 
imaginations to expand and fit the profile of actions of the Lord Ruler rather than confining it to a specific physical description. That's Um, really interesting. That's a great way of putting that. Yeah, it, it allows us to perceive him as a god, essentially, even when we know that he's a person as readers. Yeah, because he's sitting in his little god mobile and executing these exe- like blood blood pope. Like he's so powerful that he doesn't need to do the killing. He has other people do the killing, and he just is the presence that sits in the room and watches. Yeah, and saps everyone. Yeah, yeah, it's. Yeah. Take that, Francis. Right. Take that. <laughs> so with that, we move into chapter 27. We start off, of course, with our little logbook reading here. I think I've discovered why Rashik resents me so much. He does not believe that an outsider such as I, a foreigner, could possibly be the hero of ages. He believes that I have somehow tricked the philosophers, that I wear the piercings of the hero unjustly. According to Rashik, only a terrorist of pure blood should have been chosen as the hero. Oddly, I find myself more determined because of his hatred. I must prove to him that I can perform this task. I think that's a really interesting read here again, because it speaks of Rashek, but this time understanding kind of where Rashek's hate and anger a lot of this time has been coming from, his sort of resentment, as we hadn't understood it beforehand. And now how he believes and why he, he resents the Lord Ruler so much is he believes that only a terrorist could be the hero of ages and that he wears the piercings and doesn't have the proper authority vested in him. What do you make of kind of this, this read? It's kind of difficult to pin my thoughts on this because we're confined to these like what now 26 passages, 27 passages and a little bit of lore that we've gotten through Sazed, but it seems to me that he is perceiving this animosity now not as a personal attack, but as almost a function of their knowledge of the prophecy and how he doesn't perfectly line up with it. I mean, at the very least, that's a little bit of growth, you know? Like, it's he's not being driven by rage. He seems to be understanding, like... In, I don't know. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, it seems like his perspective is shifting a little bit to be upset at the prophecy, not the person. Whereas before it was like, well, what the fuck, dude? Like, why aren't you on my side anymore? Are you talking about Quan or Rashik? Quan and Rashik are two. Oh, different. they are two different yeah. people. I agree fuck. with you on. I agree with you on the read of Quan. I think Rashik is a different thing. Yeah. Oh, but but Rashik. As far as I remember, the Lord Ruler or the the author of these passages had been so much more personally upset at Rashik and like Rashik had actually been personally upset at the Lord Ruler. It was not the other way around. Okay, that much. Now I have to go back and reread it. But at the very least, it it seemed like we didn't really see much much animosity placed towards the prophecy. As opposed to the people interpreting it. Yes, right. And Rashik, I I agree with that read for sure, because Rashik is basically saying that, like, it is Quan's fault to some degree that I'm here right now. Right. Like, you could read it that way, where Rashik blames Quan for the state of which he finds himself in charge and, like, being a Pac-Man for the Lord Ruler. It's like, there's this isn't right. You know, the hero of ages is self-described, is supposed to be a terrorist man. 
and that doesn't make any sense and that's sort of where this rage comes from yeah i'd have to i i need to go back and read all of these every time i read one of these the first time i was like i need to go back and read all of them every time i got a new chunk of information i was like i want to restart reading them and i was like you're never going to go forward if you keep going back yeah (laughs) i don't know yeah but yeah good good point didn't didn't even make that sort of it's it's tough especially when you have all of these disconnects right so you have to like try to keep in mind the flow and especially given the fact that we read these at the rate that we do it can be a little bit hard to keep that you know that Mm -hmm. tracking going on yeah because these are meant to be like the nuggets to like pull you through to keep you reading and i think they would if we didn't also have a structure and format that was (laughs) okay pj take a break yeah yeah whole lot of take a break whole lot of take a break we're reading this at a faster clip though than we were red rising so that's true which is like a you're getting better is what i mean (laughs) oh thanks you're welcome so but then we get to the very specific planning of what exactly has to happen in kind of the remaining portion of this first part like what exactly they have to pull off first up of course is the house war and house venture it is determined it needs to go starting with lord straff venture himself it becomes Vin's goal to get this kind of into the house through Ellen and figure out a way to kind of manipulate and play, play into that part of the plan. Yeah. I think this is kind of the natural progression of the plan. Vin, Vin at a certain point seems kind of upset that they're sort of changing the way that they're talking to her about it. Like they'd always been very much on the side of why the fuck are you talking to him? That's getting too close to the heat back off a little bit and Mm -hmm. she seems frustrated with the fact that that's flip-flopped a little bit now but things have changed in the plan too like this is a necessity and being able to lean into ellen is their best bet so it's absolutely something to exploit from vin's from vin you know yeah yeah absolutely it's definitely a big component between Mm -hmm. the group of them so As they're kind of discussing these other details about sort of the way that the plan is going to proceed with Vin kind of in her place, recruitment in the garrison, all of these details kind of start to work themselves together. Again, like another planning session, I think we've had probably three of these as we've gone through the story with a couple of catch-ups. This is, again, reworking the plan to adjust to the new information. Says it arrives with a note from Marsh that they are intended to meet up as he has news. Afterward... Kelsier and Vin discuss the 11th medal and how Kelsier has observed the Lord Ruler... He obviously can't be omniscient, as we've kind of discussed previously. Otherwise, they'd be dead. That He'd be fully aware of everything that was going on. He also isn't omnipotent, as we know that he is at least restricted in some context to the bounds of Alamancy, you know, just as all Alamancers seem to be. But there's obviously something else going on. Like, he does have something else. Yeah. Like we talked about a little bit before, this seems to be kind of the explanation for why the Steel Inquisitors would have been able to be there. It's like he's omniscient, omnipotent, 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 however. Omnipotent. Yeah, that's that's how it's said. It's fun. Yeah. Well, it's written. Be dumb. Man. Right. Words Uh, suck. I know. Words suck. She left me roses by the stairs. There's your segue. good luck it seems like that's true in an immediate vicinity of him or at least that's the assumption i'm going on right now that is my current working theory is that he knows what's going on in a radius 
Whatever in a radius. Have. Okay. Yeah. Like a range of omnipotence. Yeah. Omnipotence. Which, which, I don't know, kind of contradicts the omni part of the term, but, you know, it's limited. But, yeah, we we kind of touched on this. That's where my thoughts are at. Cool. All right. Yeah. And we, we talked about a lot of this a little bit earlier, so no worries. Mm-hmm. We get also a few more notes on Farrakimi here that we, we talked a little bit about as well, but we can have kind of the fuller discussion, I think, here. How it's internal in some things. It can affect clarity of thought, speed, and even physical aging and weight. And that they can't be – like the bands themselves cannot be stolen from another Ferrochemist and used. Do you have any other thoughts on Ferrochemi? So I'm the really curious why they can't be shared be- between Ferrochemists. It's dependent on the amount of metal and it must be focused – like the the sort of ability must be focused into it. But it's also somehow internal and like specific – like I, I'm sure there's a very specific definition like everything else so far in this story. Like it is internally consistent. I am positive. But It's I'm almost like just- the bands or metals have like face ID. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> like they require identity. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they've got an identity requirement. Yeah. Yeah. But how cool would it be to like have an entire team focusing strength and giving it all to one person? Like how fucking awesome would that be? That would be wild. That is an implication that I hadn't really considered. Because I, I've thought, I've always thought about it within the rules. <laughs> so, like, I've always thought about it with the, the Farrakimi rules. But you're right. Like, if you could take these and somehow remove the restrictions, you could actually create a god. Like, yeah. if you, in theory, had enough people that were forced to channel in a certain way, and you could hand that off somehow. Or even if they weren't forced, if you yeah. had, like, a champion right yeah right you could use it in other ways too to like not be i was just imagining the lord rulers enslavement and like furthering yeah. that a little bit but, i mean there's that <laughs> like he hasn't figured that out so you know <laughs> like there's no but i'm i'm curious what that restriction is and how it actually works sure because it doesn't seem explicitly obvious to me why that restriction would exist but yeah i mean yeah. it does but it is it, it, it is what it is and i'm excited to learn more about it I feel like the the reason that they give is that identity, right? Because it's you storing power, so you're the only one who can access it because it's your power. Yeah, but so you're storing it into something external. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like I, I all, get, all that I'm saying I is that's, like that's their yeah. assumption, which is our yeah. assumption at the same time. Right. No, yeah. I I totally get it, and I'm not saying like that doesn't make sense. No, I I know I know you, but I, I'm just I, saying that like I want I want the. I want the delineation. I want the understanding. I want the the details. Give I want the, the nitty gritty. Yeah. Give me the nitty yeah. gritty. Give me it. Give me it. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I really think that the like even physical aging and like health component of Farrakemi is interesting. That's how old is the Lord Ruler? A thousand years. <laughs> like, I don't know, man. Yeah. What's, what's going on here? Yeah. It's interesting. So. Kelsier also mentions that he thinks that it's odd. We kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but Kelsier says that it's odd that Allomancy isn't mentioned in the logbook, right? And he had expected information on the 11th metal to come out of this. We know that there's a little bit left that says it still has to translate. He assumes that it's because whatever happened in the mountain snapped him and changed the Lord Ruler from hero to tyrant. Like whatever happened in the mountains that must happen in this critical next section of the logbook really changed him. What do you think of... Kelshear's take here. What do you think is going on? 
in terms of the sort of elementic considerations? What yeah. are your thoughts? So I, I think I touched on this a little bit earlier, but this this makes me realize that Kelsier assumes that Alamancy existed before the Ascension. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why he has that assumption, if it's just because he doesn't know any, like he hasn't seen any any evidence to suggest otherwise. Or if he knows Likely that true. it did exist. I like yeah. yeah. It's one it's one or the other. He knows he knows it existed or he hasn't seen anything opposing it. But the one question for me is how the Mistborn Misting monikers came about. Because the the story isn't the story that these powers were bestowed upon the nob- nobility from the Lord Ruler a- as a reward for being loyal. Yes. Yeah, that is the story as it stands. Right. And Kelsier knows that story. So I think that means that he's assuming that it's a lie, given that yeah. context. And I mean that makes sense. Yeah. But I don't know. I'm I'm curious what he's what he actually knows here about this and if there's information that we haven't been privy to regarding it. But it'd be pretty cool. Yeah. We know Ferrakami exists. Ferris, Kemi, Feru, Kemi. Yeah. We know that exists beforehand based on descriptions from from the logbook. But Alamancy, like you mentioned, hasn't been described. So, Are they derivative of each other? Are they entirely separate? What's up? How's that defined? Right. That's it's there's a lot of interesting questions posed here between the the logbook, the understanding of the logbook, and then like the history that the ska have limited access to, which only becomes more interesting when we're given like Ellen's perspective later and we get, you know, someone who knows a lot more again yeah. all of a sudden, which is interesting. We'll get there when we get there. But, you know, we, we also learned about the ninth metal here, which has not been talked about. We've talked a lot about the 11th metal. We've surmised a lot of things about the 11th metal. We talked about how Kelsier also has mentioned that it is so dangerous to just be consuming metals. It can kill you. It can be way worse than a pewter dragon hangover, burning a bad metal. We get a lot of information on that, which is also why Kelsier is terrified to like just try the 11th metal. Because <laughs> what if mm-hmm. it's not correct? You know, yeah. what if it's not really what it what it should be but we learn about the ninth metal we learn about gold finally because we've recognized that we've been missing one this whole time with atm being the 10th and we also learned that it doesn't follow the rules of the same eight basic alum allomantic metals that everything else is kind of paired off in very clean alloy metal alloy metal pairs but atm and gold are not paired in the same way gold is however a sort of opposite pair in the same kind of way because ATM projects the future and gold projects of someone else, projects the future of someone else, and ATM projects the past of yourself. So there's an interesting kind of thing here. What, what do you make of gold in kind of the conversation here around it? I've been trying to figure out how, like I, I made that sort of bold off-the-cuff claim that Vin and the Lord Ruler could be all somethings of each other based on gold. No idea how that would actually work. Not a clue. I don't know. (laughs) Whatever. But I'm still trying to figure out how gold could be utilized in a more, like, tangible way. Because Kelsier is basically writing writing it off as this strange, like, ultimately useless metal. But there's got to be more to it than that. There's got to be. 
And like may, maybe there's the possibility of actual communication with the past self. And maybe, maybe there's something to do with almost a corporeal form. Like Vin was kind of suggesting that it felt like she could touch the other Vin. Like it felt like it could have been something physical. So even though nobody else could see it, maybe there's some physicality to it somehow. I don't know. Those are just kind of the surface threads that I've been kind of picking with. at. Yeah. 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 That's, that's really interesting. I had never thought about it that way as the ability to kind of like pick at the past and like change. Cause if you, you've got the ability to see and kind of react to the future. Right. And mm-hmm. so, and it changes your mind to be able to kind of perceive that thing. That's a part of ATM. So then gold in turn could do something like that for the past. At the very least it allows you to perceive the past, which is, mind altering effect but could you affect it in some way or Hmm. even if not affect it gain information from it yeah right i don't know interesting so i get effectively it's affecting you at your behest yes yeah and the way that you're kind of thinking about it yeah right Mm -hmm. i think that makes sense we move on from the conversation of the ninth battle because they're having this while they're kind of waiting around for marsh to show up to Marsh being here freshly kind of tattooed with new obligator tattoos as a part of the Canton of Inquisition, which is the the specific part of the steel ministry that he is now a part of. And you can tell that once once again, Marsh and Kelsier are fond of each other inside of this exchange. They they kind of have a a brotherly conversation for the first time in a long time. It feels and it feels like we're starting to see these genuine emotions kind of return. And I think that that's really great considering whatever happened before feels like it's kind of in the rear view and they're able to kind of move forward as best that they can. We also get a lot of information from Marsh here regarding Luthadel and the ministry. Did you have any kind any takeaways you wanted to discuss between kind of the soothing that we find out that's going on in mass throughout the city of Luthadel, Marsh's new position or sort of the interworking of the, the ministry that we find out here? So I think first and foremost, interpersonally between Marsh and Kelsier, Marsh seems to actually kind of respect what Kelsier is doing now and doesn't see him as as kind of a selfish con man like he kind of saw him before. That's That seems to be pushed to the side, or at least he, he's seeing the true intentions, which is great, awesome. As far as the ministry goes... They're a bunch of fucks, man. I thought they'd be more <laughs> uh, like more knowledgeable than that. Like it seems like Marsh's careful sort of self-education and preparation for what he assumed everybody would know to become like a middle of the pack member of the obligators put him like way farther ahead than any of his peers cuz they're like not actually understanding what the fuck's going on. So that was, I mean, it, it made everybody feel more human in retrospect. That's um, a great point. I, I, yeah, I definitely saw them as godly, kind of. Like, not gods, but, like, they've got this, like, sort of aura of Yeah, more, more, in, more infallible, you know? Like, they're, they're living... They're they're acting as notaries, but they're they're somehow more ingrained into society than that. Like the obligators are like priest notaries, like priest lawyers. Yeah. Yeah. But but somehow 
beyond humanity in my mind up until this point. Now they're just fucks. Mm-hmm. Like th- that was, that was, God, I'm going to feel like such a dick saying this, but that was going back to like the fact that we both were raised Catholic. I went to a Catholic college for my first degree and there was a seminary on campus and some of the fucking people that were in that seminary, man, like priests are not necessarily well adjusted members of society. Like some of them awesome. Some of them great people that were going through the seminary program, but some of them were just fucking weirdos. It takes all kinds, right? It is what it is. (laughs) Like, Like, yeah, right. Yeah. No judgments, but definitely shifted my perspective of what it meant to be a leader of a church based on like me <laughs> knowing people going into the the profession of becoming a leader of a church like disillusioned a little bit yeah yeah i feel that definitely understand that so with that kind of final remark that we get from marsh we split and we head into chapter 28 the logbook entry in this chapter is really interesting so Got it at the top here. Sometimes my companions claim that I worry and question too much. However, while I may wonder about my stature as the hero, there is one thing that I have never questioned. The ultimate good of our quest. The deepness must be destroyed. I have seen it, and I have felt it. This name we give it is too weak a word, I think. Yes, it is deep and unfathomable, but it is also terrible. Many do not realize that it is sapient, but I have sensed its mind such that it is... The few times I have confronted it directly. It is a thing of destruction, madness, and corruption. It would destroy this world not out of spite or out of animosity, but simply because that is what it does. Also, that is, in my opinion, some of the best prose that Brandon Sanderson has put into this book. Like, it has a lyrical flow to it that feels very particular. It feels like it's in a Lord Ruler's voice. But the content and context here is really interesting it it gives almost this Lovecraftian sense of like horror and fear to what the deepness is because it is all at once unfathomable, but also sapient. Like that is an interesting juxtaposition. What do you, what do you get from that in regards to the deepness? So up until now, I'd never heard the, like that use of the term sapient, like sure or not use. How would you describe it? Like that word specifically, sapient. Like I know sapien, but describing yeah, something often, as sapient was not in my lexicon. Yeah, generally people say sentient, right? Like it's a it's a sentient yeah. thing, but sapient ends it adds it this extra layer, right? Yeah, and I was I actually looked up sentient versus sapient mm. explicitly, and it seems like the delineation is self awareness. So something gotcha. that is sentient is intelligent. But sapient is intelligent and self-aware of it. So that's that's the difference, which is a really cool word. I like it. But as I mentioned before in this episode, the biggest thing that I took from this is the fact that he's confronted his mind or confronted its mind. And that opens us up to a whole host of new potential abilities from the Lord Ruler. And I don't even know what to make of it, man. Like, there's there's a whole lot of different paths this could go down. And what that actually means, I have no idea. 
Yeah, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting quandary, right? And I think that the otherworldliness that the Lord Ruler really paints here about the deepness is is critical to the understanding of it, and in turn makes it really otherworldly. Like we've we've thought about it as this thing. It's also already defeated in our current age. Like we know that the deepness is defeated or gone as as it stands or whatever it was. Clearly, the Lord Ruler won out, but it does leave. This other sort of otherworldly question of like, what even the fuck was it? And especially using the word sapient with something that's unknowable is it feels very Lovecrafty and it feels very horror story. Yeah. Ooh, it's good. It's good. It's yeah. it's a clever way of like looping us into what was going on in the past. Right. For sure. So we exchange this very otherworldly experience with an otherworldly thing that Vin has gotten used to. It was outside of her comfort zone, and now she is back at the balls, baby. She has an interaction with Lady Cliss, and it's just kind of fun for Vin. It almost feels like she's toying with her in a way, and like she knows the game that she's playing. She understands, even though Cliss is like gossiping and whatnot, she's a bit of a dolt, and that makes this kind of enjoyable exchange because. Vin has enough self-confidence and self-awareness now to be like, lady, shut up. Stop talking about that. That's not important. I have shit to tell you. It's more important that I need you to start bouncing around. And she knows that there's clearly, clearly from the way that Lady Cliss is interacting, she's going to openly share the information that she's told to forget about House Hastings. And because she's a total gossip. It's just, it's just a very interesting kind of spin on the whole thing. It's a, it's a fun moment. Yeah. This was weirdly satisfying to read for me. That's a good way of putting it. I don't, I, I, I think it's because this reminds me of the interactions between like my mom and grandma where okay. every single conversation is don't tell anybody, <laughs> but like it is just gossip over gossip over gossip of things that don't actually require gossip. Like you don't have to say, don't tell anybody about this thing. Like nobody fucking cares. Nobody's trying to keep it a secret, but like it is just inherently gossip and inherently don't share this, but we all know you're going to share it with all of my siblings or all of, all of your friends. Like it's just how it goes. So like knowing that and like coming from it, from that perspective or coming at it from that perspective of my interaction between my mom and grandma and like aunts and uncles and like my mom's side of the family entirely speaks like this. Like very, very intentionally saying, don't share this with anybody. I don't know. I don't know. It was for whatever you got reason, a kick out of it. it spoke like it spoke to me. So. Nice. That's that's great. It's great when writing does that and brings up and evokes those feelings in our own life. And I, I really, really enjoy that as a as a perspective on this one. It It's 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 wild. It's fun. It's it's like egregious in a strange way. And we've been building up to this point of like Vin having this confidence inside of these rooms. And it's just kind of, it's kind of fun to witness it. Right. And like, she knows exactly how to play all these people now. Like she's come into her own as Valette as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I really enjoy the banter that we get a little bit later here between our literate scamp and Valette uh, and, and, you know, kind of the way that they chat. It's it's great. And she begins to feel this warmth. You know, she's got this, I think what everyone else would describe as affection. And it's, it's a really kind of 
yeah, what what is this strange feeling of of appreciating someone else? And yeah, it's it's just really touching, I think, in a big way. And even him going, I think I'm going to kiss you has this like really sweet note to it. It's aggressive, of course, and like there's that whole other context. But it, he's also asking and like respects that boundary, which is important. But it's it's got this sweet note to it considering their path to this point. What do you think about their blossoming relationship? Yeah, um, this is the point where seeing sort of the innocence and bashfulness of these interactions to a certain extent maybe really start to believe that Elend was actually being above board with Vin the entire time. Mm-hmm. I'm still not sure why he was so open with her from the start, but, you know, that's something for me to wrestle with, and maybe that's uh, more... A reflection of my own trust issues. Oh. But <laughs> We've talked a lot about your trust issues on the show <laughs> over the course of Mistborn and Red Rising. It's funny. But we we get all but confirmation by the end of this section that like that's like, there's nothing nefarious going on between Ellen and Vin. I don't think we explicitly get confirmation on that, but we get essentially we we get an understanding from Ellen's perspective of what's going on, and it doesn't seem like he's trying to play her in any way. So, you know, that's good. <laughs> that's a plus. Yeah, <laughs> we we can maybe trust a nobleman, right? Like, maybe we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. It's it's definitely it's something for sure. It's something of quality, and of course, Ellen giving into this idea of trust and like not fucking around reveals a pretty huge detail that appears to be even kept secret from other house members, other house lords. It it feels like, like this is a deep, dark secret of where they get their money. And we find out that the house venture is responsible for mining and delivering ATM to the Lord ruler. They are the managers of the pits of hat sin. That is a spicy meatball (laughs) on top of a shit ass carbonara. Yeah. (laughs) Who puts meatballs on carbonara? I had no one (laughs) that's smart. Yeah. Oh boy. It's like, that is, that's a tangle that we'll have to deal with later. Potentially. Yeah. How do you, how do you feel? What do you think about that? If you had to untangle that, make a prediction about how that's going to swing. Well, it's going to make it a lot more difficult for Vin to bring Ellen into the fold with Kelsier. Like that's going to, it's just a few more landmines to navigate. I don't know, but also it could be in like, it could be a boon if we get Ellen on like flipped essentially and working for the crew or with the crew. Then we have potentially a, like a direct, a direct tie to both the Lord Ruler and to the ATM production. Like it can be exploited in a very, very positive way for our crew here. It's just precarious. Fair point. Yeah. Like there's there's a there's a point of this kind of could go either way. There's like a see there's a seesaw going back and forth of like the potential here, and at the bottom of each side of the seesaw there is a landmine of how this could go <laughs> off, right? Like either way, if someone's ass touches the ground, everyone is fucked. <laughs> yeah. And Vin is the hinge, you know? Like, this all makes total sense to me now. Yeah. <laughs> the seesaw metaphor is perfect. Yeah, it's, it's a tough point. It's a tough point right now to live on, live in. We also have a conversation about how foolish Ellen is for wearing metal versus wood and how the Lord Ruler wears metals and rings so as to encourage the nobility to do it as well, as though it's some piece of art or a part of his plan. We've talked about this before, but it's reiterated again 
through kind of Elend, it kind of has this feeling of foreshadowing. Maybe I don't. I, it's not even like it's it's odd. It's a detail, right? What are you thinking? What do you feel? I'm making this a prediction. It's made a point often enough to to make it too difficult to ignore. Like there's clearly something very important about this, and I think it's absolutely a part of some sort of overarching plan from the Lord Ruler. Maybe it just allows for some oversight. Like, maybe he's able to sense metals in a very specific degree when they're nearby. So he's able to know, like, people's whereabouts and, like, what they're up to. I don't know. I, like, clearly flagged as a prediction. I'm not entirely convinced of what I'm saying, but that's what I'm going with. That this is... It's some sort of physical way to track people, see what they're doing, what they're up to, but also in a, in a, a certain way know that they can be not necessarily trusted, but that they're kind of doing what they can to appease him, I guess. Like if they're very obviously and cavalierly wearing metal, it probably means that they're loyal to him. Yeah, it's a sign of fealty for sure, I think. Like, I, I would agree with you there because they're following kind of in the in the footsteps. It's what he's instructed. So it, it feels like something handed down from God himself, you know, in, in their context and their religion. So it is an interesting kind of stopping point to, like, talk and discuss a little bit. But it seems to be an interesting enough point because there are some who wear the metal themselves and there are others who we know fake it with wood. And it's all about kind of appearances to some degree. So there's a question. There's a question there. We also know... That for those people that can uh, push or pull, they can see when things are metal or not. So, like, they would be able to interpret right. if someone's wearing fake metal and yeah. they're in. Yeah, like, that's a, that's an interesting compounding factor, confounding factor, I should say. So this whole thing is, like, for those who understand how Alamancy works or have those two access to one of those two metals, like, that's a thing. Are We know for sure that the Lord Ruler is capable of soothing. I guess we don't know for sure. We assume... That that intense soothing comes from the Lord Ruler. So under that assumption, the Lord Ruler is capable of soothing. Are there any other alimantic powers that have been demonstrated from the Lord Ruler directly? Or has it only been soothing so far? I think the assumption is soothing only. But remember that it's hard to discern between rioting and soothing. So there's that. But I think for the most part, we can assume... It's probably soothing. So are we not assuming that the Lord Ruler is a misborn? So you have made comments in the past that you believe that he's a misborn because he's also using ATM, right? So yes, I do believe that, but that hasn't right. been contextually confirmed. in any No, way. right, right. Yeah. No, I think contextually the only thing that we're fully aware of is right. Hmm. So are you also maybe assuming that he isn't a misborn? I have no idea what I'm assuming yet. I think it's entirely different. I think it's entirely sure. outside of the commonly understood realm of Mistborn versus Misting based on just the oddities of direct like uh, mind connection to the deepness for whatever reason in that passage and the scale at which these powers are being demonstrated i don't know yeah There's the more. scale at which everything else is done feels almost 
Like not completely, but like almost out of sync in its own way. Yeah. I'm still of the opinion that he's using ATM. So if he's if he's both soothing and using ATM, he's a mistborn. That would be the assumption. But yes. Contextually all we know is soothing. Okay. Cool. Yeah. That's why that's why this book is fun, right? It is fun. There's so many questions. There's so many like just contextual like bits mysteries. So what'd you make of Ellen's position and conversation he has with Vin about the Lord Ruler after we kind of get this reveal on sort of what's what's going on in the background? Vin points to the fact that Ellen isn't really a revolutionary based on his explanation of his sort of stances and the conversation that he has with friends. Again, this is outpouring of honesty from Ellen, and we we even kind of get that verified a little bit later here. But but he does wish that he could change the existing system underneath the living God that is the Lord Ruler. What did you... What do you think? What do you make? I thought of this as a possible point of entry for Vin. Giving Ellen the opportunity to become more than his idle musings and become more than this philosopher that he kind of fancies himself at this point and actually take action. We'll see if that becomes a possibility and we'll see if that gets shut down entirely based on the revelations that he and his friends have later about Vin. Without directly talking about previous series that we've read, this is an interesting comparison to a specific character of whom is a philosophical actor, but not one of action, against one of action, right? And so we're seeing a very similar juxtaposition of characters being kind of foisted upon us here. And that's interesting from like a writing standpoint, if people like writing similar characters and themes and juxtapositions, but it is, it's well executed. And one it's, of our boys. You, I think you're... Yeah, well, two of our boys, <laughs> one ex-boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Open I but yeah, yeah the, I the wanted being, I like, wanted to explicitly make it, but I know. yeah. Our goal here is yeah. we don't want to ruin the other series. Go fucking read Red Rising, you fools. But contextually, yes, there there are definitely philosophical parallels there. Of dude, you're spending a lot of time thinking and discussing in like smoke rooms with your friends. Go fucking do something about it. And mm-hmm. I also get the unending intimidation that is the idea that god is manifest on earth <laughs> so you can't do anything about it because yeah god will be like fuck you dude <laughs> but at the same time i feel like this this allows for simultaneously getting ellen on vin's side and explaining explaining away the sort of suspicion about vin being a spy for another house it's not necessarily something she wants to reveal right now, but if cornered, that's a way better explanation than what what's his name? Josties. Yeah. Right. Is is insinuating. Are, okay, what's the first part of your insinuation there though? Like that she'll be able to explain is like prompting him to revolution, like prompting him to be, yeah. to be an a man of action. Okay. Yeah. Just making sure I'm assuming yeah. the right yeah. thing. Yeah. Yep, using okay. this as sort of the path for which Ellen would join the resistance. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. We cut, of course, from there. He's going off to go hang out with his friends in the smoke room as he's doing and as he would, you know, basically says that, like, I have to go do this. I agreed to this already. I've spent a lot of time with you. I, I want to go hang out with my friends, go drink, whatever. So he, he leaves, heads off. We take a drink for him. Cheers. Thanks, Ellen, for providing us with drink and also for being drunk later and hungover, which is hilarious as he's talking and confronting his dad. Love that for Mm. our boy. Vin then circles back, though, and goes and walks up to Shan and is basically trying to get a read 
on what's going on with Sean Alariel. And Sean Alariel, her dismissal <laughs> of Vin on her approach seems so strange. Shan Alariel, like Alariel feels like it is so well written. It's elvish. Like it's, it sounds good when you say it out loud, but it also kind of sounds like you're just blah, 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 like mumble, bumble fucking a bunch of vowels in a row with a couple of weird loosey goosey consonants. Mm-hmm. Like it sounds, <laughs> it is, it has a very foreign feel on the tongue. It feels very elvish. Alariel. But yeah, it, Alar, Alariel, I own a Bologna. Yeah, <laughs> this is the parallel that I'm making in my head forever. <laughs> but but Vin's approach to Sean Shan it feels very strange. What do you think she's plotting? What do you think Shan's plotting here? It is strange, and it's a prediction. I know, I know. No, for everyone else, it was for the oh audience. yeah, this right. This is a prediction. So I, I would have guessed that she is playing them both. To a certain degree, but if that were the case, she would have, I feel like, tried to keep Vin close to the vest. Like, keep her in the dark, keep her, like, working for her. I don't know. As it stands, I assume I assume she's going to be making a move towards taking Ellen down politically, physically, whatever. Probably politically. And letting Vin be close to her would risk letting Ellen learn her plans. So Mm. that's, that's my assumption why she's being, why she's pushing Vin away in this way to make sure Ellen doesn't know her intentions. Yeah, for sure. I, it is, it is, it is mysterious. Her choice here is very mysterious. It's odd. Yeah. It's stark, especially given how like forceful she was before, how like, shoving she was on the part of Vin to try to get that information about the books that he was reading and everything else. And now she's just settled that she doesn't need any information. That's interesting. Yeah, it's weird. I don't and know. having a plot like this come up is interesting too, because we only have so many pages left in the book, right? Like we've only got 140. I think I was just like looking and trying to do a little bit of math on, but we've only got like 150 plus a couple 160 pages left. So not a ton of book to like unravel. Like there's a decent amount to like unravel some of this stuff, but how long can her plot go on? I also like, yes, that's a thing. And that's on my mind every once in a while. But at the same time, I know that this is not only a trilogy. It's also a, a small chunk of a larger like series of loosely connected. Like, so I am not, under the impression that any of these threads are actually going to get resolved by the end of this book. I'm sure some will such that is such an interesting setting of expectations. It makes sense. I don't, I don't like, you know, I don't, I was, my brain said behoove, but that's not the, the word I'm sympathetic. I'm empathetic at this point. Keep in mind that I've, I haven't read like half of the Cosmere at this point by page count. So like, I don't fucking know some of the shit, <laughs> but I'm getting there. I have to get there before we get through the well. Well, my goal is to get there before we get through the well of Ascension. But yeah, I feel you where it does feel like some of these things could live on further. Well, right. of Ascension is the second book. But yeah, that's yeah. what I was looking at. Yeah. <laughs> like, is that no second worries. or third? I don't know. Second. Hero of Ages is third. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The homeowners association, as it shows up in the <laughs> HOA, <laughs> baby. Yeah, uh, you're you're right. That's that's such an interesting perspective. It's very different than the one that we had inside of other series and even other books, right? Where they're 
you know, either we, we talk about the Blake Crouch things that we did first. Those are self-contained stories. We talk about Red Rising. It's all linear and there's only so many things. But this is like, well, because you're aware that there's a whole fucking universe like yeah, <laughs> and there, of these things. Yeah. And I'm aware that there are multiple series within this universe that aren't necessarily like all linear. Like, that's what I know about this universe is that like there are multiple series and they are in the same universe, but I have no idea when they chronologically happen or if they're that directly connected at all. So like cheers to that. I have one spoiler. That's the only like real spoiler that I know, which is related to Sphandrius for people who are listening, but that's it vaguely. Yep. What are you drinking? We just now? drank for that. We both we both I, just drank. I poured a little bit of just a things. little bit of that whiskey. Yeah, I tried it too. <laughs> hey, and sunshine. This is so fucking good. If you can get it there, yeah, I'll, I'm, we'll send you the brands. Yeah, send me the brand because I will uh, absolutely take a look. It is so fucking good. Definitely one of my favorite whiskeys, especially for the price. Oh my god, it's so good. Anyway, what kind I'm of whiskey do you think back. Ellen would drink? Ellen drinks brandy. That's not what I asked, Crossland. I think. <laughs> Ellen would drink pappies, but he like wouldn't care that he was drinking pappies. You know what I mean? What a dick. <laughs> right. <laughs> but like he'd be unaware that like it was this crazy exclusive thing because he's a part of the house venture, right? Like it's probably yeah. just sitting around on shelves, you know, he just grabs a bottle. So yeah. I don't think it's again, we, we kind of talked about like the difference in education and like the the social previously in the previous episode when we got into our massive conversation but like if we take that we extend it to alcohol his understanding is probably a limited window of the top one percent of tears because his family is in charge of the atm mine and one of the biggest houses mm-hmm. the biggest house so fuck you dad my favorite whiskey's bullet bourbon evan god evan williams <laughs> my favorite whiskey's evan williams honey <laughs> or green apple you know one, one of those like I like Canadian club. Yeah. By the way, enjoy what you enjoy. Oh yeah. No, like <laughs> if you like, we're, we're not genuine. Like I, I, I can't, upon occasion, honey whiskey. Great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. I am but. all for finding what's good without like finding the best without paying for label, you know? Right. That's what we're trying to like, avoid. There, there's, actively. there's one, it's one thing if like Reiki at Grey Goose, right? Yeah. Reiki is by far the best vodka I've ever tasted. Yeah. And it's Tito's is the closest thing that I've had outside of that. Like Tito's yeah. Tito's is but it's close. another $14 a bottle. Like, yeah, but it's also higher volume, isn't it? No, or it's point seven five. Like Tito's is not Tito's is not cheap. What is Tito's? Tito's? For 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 a seven fifty. So like here it's twenty three for a Reikia, twenty two for a Reikia. I am actually comparing the higher costs. Okay, it's probably like six or seven dollars higher. Okay, okay, yeah, relative. Interesting. To, I was a mat. I, I was like actually Reikia exactly more. what you're saying. I was comparing the volume difference and difference in price volume, but I was using the smaller bottle to the higher bottle, which was wrong. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's like probably seven bucks more or so. Okay, I like Reikia a lot more personally. Right, I would agree. Drink Reikia. It's delicious. Anyway. Yes. Without a doubt. Um, yeah. On average, Tito would cost 29 versus Reikia is 22 here. Yeah. So there's your price. Cool. Anyway. Uh, Reikia, we are accepting like. sponsors. Yeah, please. Reikia, sponsor us. We talk about you so fucking much on the show. 
Somebody send this to Reykjavik. They're funny Icelandic dudes. I'm sure they'll love it. I'm sure we're also pronouncing it wrong. A hundred percent. There's no way. Rika? <laughs> is, is it? Is it Rika? It's R-E-Y-K-A. They, they have it on the website. This is a total team. They've got... <laughs> Also, if you haven't seen, like, on in certain states, they do sell their bottle with, like, a fun frozen shot glass, which is really cool. They don't sell, or at least I haven't They don't seen sell it in Minnesota. I haven't seen it in North Carolina either, but it is apparently in a lot of other places because I did Google search to, like, look it up. But, yeah, they've got, like, an icy shot glass, so you're able to use the mold to freeze an ice shot glass, pour the Reiki into it, and, like, sip it and, like, bite the shot glass, which is a fun thing that people do to freak other their friends out. There's a couple of videos online of that. I'm like, that's fucking genius. Like, you're so feral that you bite through the shot glass. I'm like, that's <laughs> fucking great. Bad for your teeth, but great. Anyway, cutting back to it. We also switch to a brand new point of view, something that hasn't been introduced in a long fucking time inside of this book. We cut to a point of view from Ellen himself. Brandon, with this point of view change, is showing us something that we haven't really seen since the beginning of the story when we were inside of Trusting's perspective. He's providing us with more insight into the noblemen themselves. What do you make of this choice and what we see from Ellen in his discussion with Tendal and Jastes? I think his friends are making really good points. And I would expect, like, I'd be suspicious of the entire story if these points didn't get brought up, you know? Sure. But they yeah. they accidentally stumbled into the right conclusion for the wrong reasons, you know? Like, I don't know how yes, you got that's here, a great way of putting you it. got to right. the wrong answer, you got to the right answer. Because she had no idea that that was his, like, it wasn't like she was, tr- she was actively not trying to make waves, and just happened to, like, I don't know. Yeah. Just happened to sway. Like, it was, yeah. Yeah. And she had no idea who he was until after the fact. So, it's just funny. It's ironic how this whole thing turned out. It, because In a it, non-Alanis Morissette way, yes, it is genuinely ironic. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know what else to, to say about it. Because they are right, but their entire reasoning is completely off base yes right which is it's kind of a fun a fun little bit i love how internal ellen is as well and like very aware inside of these moments he's he's also contemplating things like we we talked about his his philosopher attitude right like he has this air about him of like wanting to be a man of action but then at the same time he's also like but the other philosophers were like executed for various reasons over time and for you know treason and stuff like that. So he's like, Meh. he's in a tough spot. Like he knows that he's in a tough spot for like what he wants to do and what he thinks that he could do as a hopeful upstart. Makes it tough. It's a tough it spot does. for him and his friends. So a drunken Ellen leaves and heads home to House Venture and walks into the house and is immediately detected by his Tinai father, Straff Venture. You can imagine him, like, trying to sneak past the door, Scooby-Doo style, and then gets like, Ellen, come here! In, like, a gruff so Michael Kramer's voice here, by the way, is fantastic um, for Straff. I love Straff's voice from Kramer. But, yeah, that could, that could, that could work. I yeah. imagine this yeah. kind of, like, sometimes late at night after we're done recording maybe i've had a little bit too much to drink i don't know who knows who's to say really but but me (laughs) but what's too much me trying to get ready for bed and like brush my teeth like take my multivitamin 
all of my all of my like nightly routine I'm trying to do that quietly and then immediately getting called out like what the fuck is all that noise <laughs> like oh i thought it was quiet that's which that's is only what- exasperated <laughs> by a tin eye <laughs> imagine that just elevated <laughs> like dude you were not being secret whatsoever yeah yep exactly yeah. so it's, it's also so clear yeah. go ahead Oh, I was just going to say, like, that's exactly what was going through my mind was like, I get it. <laughs> yeah, entirely. Entirely. How do you imagine this room that he's in? I have a very specific. I have no reason for it, but I, I imagine it like, God, what is. Have you have you watched Handmaid's Tale? Not yet. OK. Holding off until it's done. That was my. That's fair. I've read I've read the book. Like, I I know what it's about, but just the the visual dis- depiction of the commander's office sure is kind of okay. what i imagine just sitting area fireplace elegant tables with chessboards set up shit like that yeah and i'm not can, taking I, any of that contextually i'm sure there were descriptions that i glossed over and did not play into my like imagination of I just Googled it, and I definitely imagine it very similarly, but without the blue and instead a lot more mahogany everywhere, like just dark yeah. wood. But I, I would agree, like in, in concept. It's it's so interesting because it's, it's, not, it's not that well-defined, if that makes sense. Like Brandon doesn't go out of his way to give you much more than a couple of sparse details about a room to give you just enough to like paint. Like there are books on the shelves, there's a fire, there's a servant in the way of the fire, he's sitting in a chair. Like that's what you get. But that's enough to, like, give you an idea to fill out the rest of the room. It's the same thing with, like, his depictions of violence a lot of the times. It's, like, it's just violent enough to understand and imagine everything else. And that's fun because then you get to this point where you're like, oh, I can draw this comparison that I have with, you know, The Handmaid's Tale and The Room. I got a, I got a very similar vibe, you know, like like I said, mahogany shelves, bookcase. You've got the fireplace. You've got him with his feet kicked up on an ottoman, I imagine. Like smoking sipping something probably not not like but. a person like a like a piece of furniture right <laughs> the the furniture not, not a person there aren't ottomans ottoman the people in this story <laughs> so part of this conversation though is also that that servant that's in front of him which is ten soon the house venture chondra of whom's body is that of a servant from the hastings household this is one of those nobleman moments where it's like, this is new information that we don't, we haven't really parsed yet. Yeah, it's pretty fucked. The description was most recent body, and uh, that's kind of disturbing a little bit. Okay. At the very least, it gives us more background on what could be going on with Lord Renew, mm-hmm. but doesn't provide any actual additional explanation, you know? Like, it's just mm-hmm. more, more context. So... Knowing that this sort of thing exists and what could like, is this what's happening with Lord Renew or is it something adjacent? Is it something similar? I don't know, but at least it's not entirely an unknown, undeveloped, unique thing. Thing. Yeah. Thing yeah, is right. not an elegant word, but you know, no, <laughs> I, I know what you're getting at though. Right. <laughs> Ten soon. The name is also interesting too, because it's, it's, capitalized in different ways right like 10 one word combined capital t capital s on soon yeah 
makes for an interesting thing. But we get we get no other characteristics outside of the fact that they're basically having a conversation. And then when Ellen walks in, Tensoon walks out that he's right. embodying the persona of a Hastings household member, which is interesting because that is a that is an incredible spy to have. They can shift mm-hmm. bodies. Yes. Yes, it is. And that gives me a whole lot of whole lot of thoughts, man. Yeah. A whole lot of thoughts. Like, Do you have thoughts? Is that Shan? Is Shan one of those? That Anything could be. Else? Any other thoughts? Quan. Quan is spelled K-W-A-N, like not not spelled differently. No, I know. I wasn't talking about his spelling. I'm just hmm. saying, like, potentially. Gotcha. The shift in, the, the sudden stark shift in Quan's behavior that we get in, I mean, it's the next, the next sort of uh, logbook entry. Could that explain that sh- stark change in behavior? Some something to that effect. That he's being know. imitated, changed. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. All right. It's fucking fun, right? It's a lot of fun. So we move from this really fun idea of <laughs> Tensoon and Condra in general into Straff just being a motherfucking dick. Like the dude is a fucking asshole. And we kind of got that. We got a little, we got a taste of it in the way that he treated Kelsier. But even to his own son, he says things like you're never going to inherit the house and, and shit like that. We know that there's we're we're aware at the very least that there's really no other heir. Like Ellen is the heir for all intents and purposes. This fucking sucks. What do you make of the conversation between him and daddy dearest here? I mean, what a dick. <laughs> like, just fuck. But at the same time, it doesn't seem intentionally that malicious. It seems like he has a very clear motivation, which is the preservation and prosperity of his house. Both, Yes, definitely with, true. So, yes, he's an asshole, and yes, he seems antagonistic towards Elland, but it's because Elland is putting himself in a position where he is opposing that motivation, as opposed to just being unfairly villainized by his father, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a that's a great way of looking at it, too, because he isn't strictly like Ellen isn't behaving according to code. Like if Ellen was behaving in a way that Straff felt was appropriate, sure, like it would they would have a better relationship. But at the same time, Ellen is like any well, he's not a teenager. He's an adult. I think he's 18. I think we delineated that early. Oh, I don't remember his age. The, what was the age no, difference between uh, and Unless you're a very mature 12-year-old or something like that. Four-year-old? It was no, younger about, than that. About twi- twice my age. Oh, yeah. Right, right. A Unless you're a 10-year-old. Yeah. Was it, I was think it? Vin turned 18 and he's 20. I think that's what it is. Yeah, I think I yeah. think that's right. Right. Very mature 10-year-old. Yes, to your yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so like he's, he's actively pushing against. He kind of has like, there is a teen angst and like pushing out against your family university like era kind of thing going on around him that makes sense he's intellectually explorative which is again against father you know it it makes sense but at the same time straff is just the absolute worst (laughs) rendition of the worst type of father in that situation like this there are a few examples that i can think of there's only one that i can think of that's really really new that like I literally read in this last or watched in this last week. That is a worse example of a father in my head in the same kind of situation. And boy, that one's bad. Everyone go watch Peacemaker, but (laughs) 
fucking wild. Yeah. So. God. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, ultimately, like the the crux of that is what a dick. What a dick, Straff Venture. How dare you? How we dare end you? the chapter. How how dare you? How dare you be an asshole to our boy, Ellen? We end the chapter, of course, with the discussion with Lord Jastes about Vin and her whereabouts, or seemingly her disappearance from her carriage after the ball. Ellen orders spies to then go track someone. This is interesting and leaves a lot of kind of questions here circulating right like this he doesn't put it in words that he wants to track vin necessarily but right you know yeah so like i i don't get the feeling from this entire conversation that he's completely convinced by by Josty's claims but yeah. the, at the very least it's it's making him think right whatever but like you said we're kind of made to assume that the spies are to follow vin but Boy, howdy would I love it to be Josties. But they follow Josties instead? Because <laughs> yeah. you think he's kind of being shady? No, not that he's being shady, but that, like, that's Ellen's perspective. Like, I, I think Josties is making very, very intelligent and great insights. Like, those are the conclusions he's, he's really that should be made. Like, reasonable. Yeah, yeah it's right. very reasonable. It's just wrong. Kind of. Right. Right. But I don't know. I think it'd be funny <laughs> to to have Jossies <laughs> be followed. But yeah, I we're we're made to assume that this is to follow Vin. Or the other the other option, I think, and I think would make more sense, knowing like knowing to a certain extent how the nobility works. I think he'd probably set the spies to follow Sazed. Interesting. Okay. Under the assumption that Sazed would be follow less, the yeah, less the suspicious. Steward, yeah. Of of everybody in the vicinity, and therefore easier to follow and easier to keep track of. That's interesting, and I think a good read because, like, in theory, the stewards are relatively bland and boring. That would make a ton of sense. Yeah. All right. So we end. This week, with a logbook section, of course, as we do most every week, the logbook at the beginning of chapter 29, as the audiobook reads as such, the others all think I should have had Quan executed for his betray his betraying me. To tell the truth, I'd probably kill him this moment if I knew where he'd gone. At the time, however, I just couldn't do it. The man had become like a father to me. To this day, I don't know why he suddenly decided that I wasn't the hero. Why did he turn against me, denouncing me to the entire conclave of the Worldbringers? Would he rather the Deepness win? Surely, even if I'm not the right one, as Quan now claims, my presence at the Well of Ascension couldn't possibly be worse than what will happen if the Deepness continues to destroy the land. Yeah, super interesting. And this isn't entirely new, but it's something that hasn't been shown in a logbook in a while. Since since early in this novel, I guess, but the Lord Ruler's uncertainty of himself. And I think it's a significant enough point to to make like to, to actually point out, you know? Like I'm not sure what to make of Quan still, but he what what is what is the one of the first entries talking about him being a fraud? And like, just kind of the the identity crisis of who 
who this author is and it, if it's entirely fraudulent. And that's been absent in these writings for most of the books since then. Yeah, part one and part two, I feel like had some bits of that, right? Like of him feeling like a fraud and then being confronted by people like Rashik, but then being reminded like someone like Quan being like reaffirming that, no, you were the hero. And then the prophets believe this and like you're lining up with a lot of the ideas here. And that that sort of, you know, throughout the logbook, Quan has been like instilling in our boy, the Lord ruler, like a lot, a decent amount of faith mm-hmm. and our our boy, the Lord Ruler, our boy here is losing the faith of Quan, has completely lost it. So Yeah. And this is this is where that sort of thought of maybe it's a body snatcher. A body snatcher, huh? Well, not body snatcher. Oh, for Quan. For Quan. Right. For I thought Quan. you meant for the Lord Ruler. I was no, like, Jesus no, no, Christ. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, but for Quan, because I about this... had a heart attack. No, <laughs> so I'm not I'm not making that egregious of a jump right now. Okay. That's good. Dear but, God. This is a departure from Quan's typical disposition, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's definitely sort of – it is It is the switch, right? And, like, now, given hindsight, the Lord Ruler would have killed him for sort of the, the actions that he's gone through. But at the same time, he he's internalizing that and having a tough time. It's very interesting because I don't know if – have I drawn this comparison before? I think I might have. This feels closer to what meditation feels like, meditations feels like in the beginning of the book when it's really a lot about kind of the surrounding battles and things like that before it starts to devolve into not devolve, but like change into something more, a little bit more philosophical on the front end. It ends up being a lot more personal and about the people around him and sort of reacting to the situations and and thinking about battles Mm -hmm. and the people who taught him things. This feels like in a similar way, reacting to some of those same moments. So yeah. Mm -hmm. It does. Final thoughts on uh, on this week. This was such a fun episode to record, man. This is a great episode. I I love this episode. Fact, mm-hmm. fact. We are, you know, you know, it's one of those weird things where it's like you're constantly improving at something, and every once in a while you just finish something, and you're like, that felt really good. And this is one of those where it's like, I think that was really good. We're also coming off the heels of an episode where we we spoke for like eight hours. That's you a were, fair point. You were very <laughs> generous with with the edit to make. I I think you made a very a very fair. How would I call it? I, I yeah, think of it as a distillation. Of yeah, a fair a fair distillation of the conversation. That's the right way to put it. I think. But that conversation went on for fucking ever, and like an extra two hours after we stopped recording. <laughs> Which, yeah, like we we were like I got to well we both got to a point where it's like okay we have to actually finish the rest of this fucking episode mm-hmm. so let's let's just power through yeah. the back half of this and then when we got down it's like all right now it's time to hash out the details of what we were talking about and I I um, think the point that we finally came to at the end of it was when I mentioned the term intentionality mm-hmm. which I didn't <laughs> mention at all during the actual recording no. but I think that's what actually conveys what I was talking about intention right intentionality and perspective were kind of our dueling things that like we both needed to make sure that it was clear on yeah yeah and that's where i think actually early in the conversation we said those things without being explicit and then we got really picky about being (laughs) explicit about things and so then that's when it became a question of none of this is making it out to anyone else (laughs) yeah yeah it was a very fun conversation though yes yes we are not mortal enemies, so no, no. 
don't know. Thank you for parsing through that and making an intelligible, like, cut that lasted, what, 15 minutes? Correct. Yeah, I cut down, like, a three-hour conversation into 15 minutes, basically, <laughs> which was a feat. We'll just call it that. <laughs> but actually, what's fun is that most of that conversation is very linear, except for you accepting things, which I cut in. <laughs> Every, it's all very, very linear, and, like, it's all pretty much in line. It didn't move anything really out of place, except for a point in which to cut out of the conversation. <laughs> so, yeah, like, that's fair. That's the only thing that was really shifted. Because I was like, this is the point that we came to, so I can make you, like, I can just insert an agreement, because this is what we agreed upon. This is fine. You yeah, get, you ran so. it by me first, too. So I did. I double-checked. I double checked. I wasn't pushing any <laughs> boundaries or being a cheater or a scamp. Yeah. Yeah. With that, to that point, let's move into our question of the week. Uh, the question, of course, because of our fucking lengthy... Again, PJ's predictions, you've heard them over the course of the episode. We'll reiterate them at the beginning and when they come up again. But questions of the week... What was your favorite moral debate <laughs> after we had last week's? It felt like the only fucking question that we could ask. So, PJ, you kick it off here. From double checking your Instagram. How would I pronounce this? I I, I know I would pronounce it Rob, Rob G. G fifty four. But, but Robga, Robga, Robga fifty four on Instagram. Jean Valjean and Inspector Javert Javet. How would you pronounce? I think it's. I think it's Javert, but I don't. Javet. It might be Javet. I don't French. Les Miserables? Is that how you pronounce that? Yeah, from that? Les Miserables. Yeah. Dude, I, I wrote it so written. that you could pronounce I, it. Like, I wrote it so that you could I, pronounce it correctly. I'm still going to double check. I'm still going to, no, like, yeah. second guess myself because I'm not good at reading. Yeah, otherwise it reads as Les Miserables, like, if you're reading it regularly. So, yeah, I, but strict yeah, obedience to the law or room... For grace and grow. Growth. But yeah. Growth. They got cut off with letters. So it's gotcha. grace or growth. Grace and growth. Yeah. That seems perfectly in line with this. Yeah. Especially topic. considering it's about like Les Miserables is about the French Revolution. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it's totally, totally fits. It's a wonderful moral debate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, from Instagram, from Cosmere writing, utilitarianism is a fascinating one to me in a, in any storytelling and i agree i think utilitarianism in general can make for very compelling storytelling there are a number of different stories that kind of point to those things or like people's individual philosophies in storytelling so this is a great like moral debate that exists in a number of books and my favorite example is from stephen baxter's zeely sequence in parts just in chunks it's like a 20 book series so it's hard to say they like they, they cut back and forth from philosophical ideas but gotcha yeah from Safondrius the howler on our patreon discord doskaevsky specifically crime and punishment the morality of murder have you read crime and punishment i have not hmm i thought that might have been a high school read for you but uh, I wasn't sure. No, in AP, think, it was so. Yeah, I I wasn't able to take AP English or AP literature because yeah. of orchestra. Maybe no, it wasn't because th- it was something else. It was something. Maybe it was like a that, math though. class. Right. Maybe it was some like advanced. Math I think it was. Class yeah, was it take. like calc? Yeah, it was something like that. But I wanted to. I ended up not being able to take those classes. There was another class member who I remember had to like switch back and forth and like deal with a ton of stuff between, I think, math and lit in order to make that work. So, 
Yeah. It was something I, I it was something to that effect. Yeah. But no, I never I never read Crime and Punishment. I think it's a great read, especially now like not being forced to read it is wonderful. I think I mentioned this to Savandrius inside of the Discord, but I read it probably once every two years ish at this point. I didn't I liked it the first pass that I read it in high school, and then in post I've I've given it a lot more. And I really think that it is such a fascinating meditation on morality, humanity, and so many other things, especially for something that was written at the same time as the Civil War. Yeah, that's what's wild about it. Like, this novel is written at the same time as the Civil War, and that gives it this, like, almost otherworldly feeling to all of the characters and the environment and the reality of everything. It's oh, it's so weird. It's so it's so different and distinct. Dostoevsky rocks. I'm going to cut to one of our members of our Discord who sent me a message in right at the bell here. So Marcus from Discord, the thought of a moral dilemma from one of my favorite book series. It's from Legend by Murray Liu. In it, one of the main characters, June, is a prodigy in their military. She gets tasked with capturing Day, a young rebel who is on top of their most wanted list. Long story short, she has to determine whether to follow her orders or to believe Day and betray all of her years of training. And this is definitely a moral dilemma. I've read Legend. I really enjoyed it. It's a wonderful YA dystopian fantasy series. Mary Lou is a fantastic author, and I highly recommend it. I think that this is a great moral dilemma. I totally agree with you, Marcus. Awesome. Yeah, that that came in basically right when we started. A, a minute before we started recording this. It was it was wild because oh, we were actually wild. in the middle of our icebreaker yeah. technically. Yeah. And then I added it. Yep. Yeah. So thanks for getting in under the radar there. For me, this is this is my own answer. If you have not yet read Golden Sun, the second book in the red rising series by pierce brown this will be a spoiler for that so skip ahead 30 seconds starting now darrow's decision to drug roke in order to save him from the the bomb essentially even just isolated that is a moral quandary of like where do you draw the line between him personally he's directly deciding to save somebody of like the the class that he's trying to overthrow but beyond that the just waterfall of consequences that comes out of that is just it it just goes farther and farther and farther and pervases through basically the rest of the story really really interesting and uh fun fun quandary for darrow there i'm so glad you came around to being on my team on this but yes it it only like only in perfect hindsight do you kind of get the full context of how how the minutia of that choice impacts the rest of the story. Like it's such a weird mm-hmm. you don't really get it until the end. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. With that, mine is one of mine from my actual favorite movie. It's one that I think about all the time. It's when I consider I watch this movie probably honestly like once every two months. Like I literally love and adore looper more than i love and adore anything else (laughs) but the the trouble or the paradox of being presented with a certain future and the ability to change it at a dire cost to oneself is a fascinating moral quandary like it is it is a choice to sacrifice one for the many which seems classic but in the context of the finality of that moment in that movie 
It is so quick. There's no time to debate. There's no time to philosophize. This is the moment where you pull the trigger one way or another, and it's the same character pulling the trigger, and that's why it's fascinating. Like, that impetus to make that decision is a moment in writing that I think, I don't know, man, I haven't experienced a whole lot better twists and stories and philosophical moral debates that are depicted in 30 seconds of dialogue and 10 seconds of film ever. It's gut-wrenching to me to this day. That's why it's my favorite movie. Like the rest of the movie is fantastic. It's brilliantly shot. But that final moment makes you question all of the individual decisions, the cascading decisions. And yeah, I got in a Twitter conversation with Ryan Johnson about this particular point. And in addition, the Rainmaker and the characters in general on Twitter, I have it like tagged and saved because it's like a 12, 12 tweet, like reply response that we were just having a great time talking about back in like 2014. And I fucking love this story so much, dude. I can't, I can't <laughs> stop. Anyway, that's mine. There you go. With that, we have our question for next week. This one's a little bit more complicated, so we want to give it like a little bit of context. So the scene that we kind of want to reference for our question is that of the Lord Ruler in the cart, in the black carriage, with the white horses, the spectral-ish horses out front. Often in stories, villains can be hidden in the background to create a sense of menace, like Darth Vader in the original Star Wars series, only appearing for the 14 minutes on the film. In total, we get the initial appearance of horror, and then later it's it's kind of this threat in the background until their sudden reveal in the second or third act, or their, their reappearance at that point. I, we pose the question, what's your favorite villain reveal? We were trying to find the best way to actually like word that question and i'm glad you came up with that sort of preamble because i think that explains what we're talking about so yeah i'm excited to see what what answers might come out of this this is such a good one there's so many like i've got a couple that i can't talk about explicitly because we'll we'll talk about them in some other contexts later in other book series but there there are a couple that i can think of that i i love and adore And I just want to make sure that it's implied that like the goal here is the reveal of the villain and kind of the menace. There's a couple of recent movie examples that I can think of from the MCU that do a good job with this. There's a couple, you know, there's there's a ton out there. So, yeah, cool. With that, we go into next week. Next week, we are going to be reading chapters 29 through 32. Again, 69 pages in the paperback. Two weeks in a row. Dope. (laughs) Hey, got it. Yeah. So again, chapters 29 through 32. So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you, as always, to Tim and Andrew for making sure this entire thing runs smoothly. Check out all the links in the show notes. You can find our schedule, our Patreon, previous episodes, websites, social media, everything. All in one convenient location. And keep an eye out. There's new things that might be changing and launching relatively soon. Check the websites. They'll be there first, probably. What What are you talking about, Crossland? I'm not talking about anything. I don't, I don't know. What you, I don't know what you don't know that I'm talking about. We, <laughs> oh, I know, I know, but I'm posing mm. as if I'm not. Oh well, there are going to be fun things. <laughs> February is going to be a very fun month. I'm very yeah, excited. But with that as well, we still have ongoing right now. This is kind of the at the time that this comes out, you've got about a week left to enter into our Instagram giveaway contest. Make sure that you go ahead, tag two people, comment, check it out on Instagram, words and whiskey pot or words, whiskey pod, like PJ had said previously, again, available on Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, words and whiskey show at gmail.com words and whiskey pod, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, and patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey. 
I would like to correct you there. You said words and whiskey pod. It is just words whiskey pod. I'm going to edit it so it's proper. Don't there worry. we go. It's good, fine. Good deal. I can fix this part really easily. <laughs> and then beyond that, just keep a lookout. We've got some stuff coming up that's going to be really cool. We've I got, tweeted about it a little bit, but we've we got a lot of two author stuff. interviews. Yes. So got those we've got new projects that the mm-hmm. two of us have been involved with for the last couple of months that are potentially, I, I don't know when that's going to come like publicly. Yeah. Out, TOK but, is a completely different release date. Oh, at this point. we're, we're giving it saying, acronyms now, huh? Oh, well, it's more <laughs> fun to give it an acronym so that people can try to work out what the fuck that means <laughs> in SP. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be a fun time. So, yeah. Going to be a very fun time. Thank you all so much for your support. Again, leave us a review if you can on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or on your podcatcher of choice. Listen, subscribe, let us know, and we love you. We'll see you next time. At the very least, as much as like Ellen loves Brandy. Maybe even more. Just to say a little bit too much sometimes, but not enough other times. A healthy amount. We love you. Verging on unhealthy. We love you like a 12 p.m. (laughs) beer for Vin's sake, you know? Yeah. All right.